Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side, taking you through uh, three hours of fun, tons of laughter. Oh, we will laugh today. I can already tell. James is in a good mood. And when James is in a good mood, it's going to get crazy. Welcome to the program, man. Have we got a lineup for you? We've got a. We, we're going to have an expert that's that is a terrorism expert. I mean, I mean that sounds like a horrible job, but we're going to be talking terrorism today. We're also going to get into how to let go of the phone addiction if you tend to have that little problem going on. Also, a little bit later in the show, self-destructive behaviors. Do you know somebody that? You know, they do something habitually that's that's self-destructive, maybe cutting on themselves, eating disorders, any type of kind of mental health uh, or mental be- or mental health or behavior issues that are self-destructive. We're going to be talking about how to break that cycle with an expert a little bit later on that as well. But boy, remember, the goal of the show, give you the tools to help you have a healthier life, stronger love and uh, better leadership. That's the goal. And man flipping alive. What's going on in Washington, D.C.? Well. It is crazy town. There are versions of leadership. (laughs) And then there are versions of leadership. It depends on your point of view. It reminds me of like ninth grade, like people running for office. 47 Republican senators signed an open letter to Iran's leaders Mm -hmm. warning them that any deal they cut with the U.S. will only last as long as President Obama is in office. I mean, it is a fact. A new president comes in, yeah, he could adjust things or change things. But they just wanted to point that out in the middle of ongoing talks with Iran. Well, shouldn't the Democrats, the shouldn't like forty-eight Democrats, then send another letter saying, just to remind you, they also could keep whatever decisions we make, yeah, with the president. What the heck? It's There's- embarrassing. Trying to undermine the unusual partisan move when it comes to foreign policy was dismissed by Democrats as a stunt that weakened America's hand. Iran foreign minister called it propaganda with no legal value. The White House said it interferes with negotiations. And this all goes back, I believe, to the fact that President Obama unilaterally went off on the immigration issue. And that and, and the, the, the reality is they can't talk. We're just seeing a series of retaliations so, yeah. here. There's nothing actually being accomplished. No. We're just kind of throwing snowballs. Well, and by at the each way, other. the the Republicans are worried because Iran is so dangerous. So why are we negotiating with terrorists? Kind of idea. Yeah. And then they just wrote a letter to terrorists to tell them that our negotiations with you may not be legitimate in the long run. Seems kind of counterproductive, but Lack in the letter it states that a uh, the Senate must ratify a treaty by two thirds vote. As um, actually, as the U.S. Senate website clearly spells out. Yes. The quote from it says, the Senate does not ratify treaties. Instead, the Senate takes up a resolution of ratification, which by the Senate formally gives its advice and consent, empowering the president to proceed with ratification. What? Yeah. They they give their opinion. They say we agree or disagree with this and then give it to the president for further review. So 
even what they told Iran that they can do, the members of the Senate, yeah. was incorrect. So uh, they even they got what their job is in this whole process wrong in the letter. James, take a note here. Okay. Um, mental note, just to remember to vote. Okay. Out all sitting congressmen, presidents, president singular, senators, uh, and their staff. ASAP. You, you're going to single-handedly vote out every single congressman, president, and their staff? Yes. Thank oh. you for reading back my note. You're welcome. Yesterday, you couldn't read back my note. It was chicken scratch. But, yeah. you know, I'm getting better. In, in, other, <sighs> in other news, Hillary Clinton. Who? Hillary. Okay. She might. Well, she might hold a press conference this week to discuss. Is she still her around? What's, yes. she, what's she doing? Not sharing emails or using private <laughs> servers at ClintonEmail.com. She might hold a press conference yeah, that, where she might address an issue that is impacting her numbers and her. That was the top news until hmm. forty-seven Republicans wrote a love letter to Iran. Yeah. So as they did that, all of a sudden this Hillary mock possible press conference thing got shoved out the door. It's like, okay, great rumors, Ah. moving on. Ah. Uh, Well, you know what? She needs to get on this. She's getting behind it, and and she's in trouble. If I mean, when you've got your own Democratic people saying... Yeah, you need to talk about this. You can't just let this go. A University of Oklahoma fraternity got into some trouble. The president of the school, David Boren, slammed the school's Sigma Alpha Epsilon chapter for singing racist chants. Ridiculous. In a a press conference Monday, Boren stressed the school's zero-tolerance policy towards racism. As far as I'm concerned, the fraternity will not be back, not as long as I am president. He said he will go as far as to put a padlock on the door. (laughs) They have until midnight tonight to vacate the premises. And he hopes the leaders... I'm assuming the people on this video will just leave the school is what the president is hoping. Because he go away. He doesn't want to have to bother with you know expelling them, them down and kicking him out of school. Him. Just leave on your own, please. I love that he's like we we're not here to support bigots. That was this president is the real deal. I, I like David Bourne. We need David Bourne to be maybe we need David Bourne in DC. Because he just grabbed it and said, Done. Yeah. Crush. What? Done. It's not what? It's just... We're just having fun. Can we? Don't we have rights? <laughs> no, you don't. Unbelievable. See, I always wondered what fraternities were for anyway. Yeah. I mean, hazing, right? I guess they're for hazing. Yeah. School spirit. Yeah. Hurting I watch Revenge of the Nerds, right? They beat up the nerds. Nerd beatings. <laughs> I mean, it's like... Yeah. That just proves it right there. I mean, not all of them, of course, but, man, we need more videos like that to leak out. So Senator Lindsey Graham came out and said he's never sent an email. Right. We so heard pe- that. People started looking into how likely is it that a senator, someone who's educated, uh-huh. a senator makes around 175000 a year, so a person of that, uh, I guess, tax bracket. Yeah. What are the odds? Income. What are the odds odds of that? Educated person, you know, makes that kind of money. So it says, according to a Pew Research poll from 2012, 9% of American adults say they have never sent or received an email in their lives. Well, what what age is that? That's 9% of adults, so 18 plus. No way. It's what they found. Only 3% of college educated respondents say they have never used email. 
85% of respondents whose household income was less than 30000 per year said they had used email compared to 97% of those earning 75% or more. Interesting. And it says 90% of adults in senior or in Senator Lindsey Graham's age group. 9%? 9% or of nine, 90% of adults. In his age group. In his age group. Have sent emails. Says they have either sent or received at least one message and even among those 65 and older, that number is 86%. So oh. six, at least one in their entire life. So he is this, if this proves to be accurate, his statement, he this is almost infinitesimal, it seems, that yeah. he could possibly exist yeah. without sending an email. He's in a professional situation. Yeah. He went, you know, you, you have college, you have income, you have all these different factors where the rest of the country... It's really high that these that, that people yeah. use email at he, least once. But he has people, mm-hmm. so that's what he does. He just he just you know what he is. I don't want to, I don't want to cast aspersions. <laughs> He's just lazy. Is that what it is? Lazy Senator Graham, too lazy to do his own email. Forty percent of the world population has an internet connection, so sixty percent of the world they're not sending emails. Not weird. So we're all, we shouldn't probably get down on Lindsey Graham. I mean, sure, he is creating legislation. Yeah, he sits on the, for the technology. The, what the Senate Technology and Law Committee or subcommittee? So he still calls it the interweb. The interwebs. <laughs> yeah. You think this interweb's going to stick around? Well, you know, poor Lindsey Graham. He doesn't know what he's missing. He doesn't know how many Viagra ads he could be getting. He's on Twitter. He doesn't know how many just silly quotes. He could get. He's on Twitter. That's true. Well, his his office is on Twitter. I, I don't think he actually does much with it. No, I'm pretty sure he does. He has a uh, 18 year old staffer who's in there just crunching away. Poor guy. He really just is missing so much. Not really. Well, how many like times? How many viruses has he failed to open? You haven't lived till you've shut down your network. You haven't lived till you know <laughs> your IT department shows up at your cube, and starts working your network. Mercy. Well, that's uh, I guess that's good news. Good news. Well done. Well done. Well done on the uh, the news front there. Here's the deal. Terrorism. If I asked you to define terrorism, would you even know what to call it? What to say? What constitutes terrorism? What is the biggest terroristic threat that we will face here in America? We're going to take a break. When we come back, wonderful guest from the University of Utah, uh, S.J. Quinney College of Law, Amos Giroa, Giora is going to be joining us. Wonderful, wonderful professor with some incredible insight into terrorism and what's really going on. We're going to talk about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show up next right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, terrorism since 9-11, it's, you know, it's hit America in a way that uh, I think we're understanding a little bit better what it's about. However, can you imagine being, for example, an Israeli living in Israel, knowing that every one of your neighbors pretty much ready for your death, your demise, 
having all the guns in the Middle East pretty much aimed at you, it's a big deal. They've been living with terrorism for a very long time. And um, we found an expert that I'm so excited to, to just get him on the phone and let him teach us what he knows. I had a chance yesterday to watch a lot of uh, you know YouTube videos about him. And there's nothing really that polarizes the world more than even discussing some of these topics. Uh, you know, it's hard. And this this gentleman uh, is he's a scholar. He's a professor at uh, the S.J. Quinney uh, University uh, uh, College of Law at the University of Utah. Our guest is Amos Giora. Giora, and Amos is uh, has just I think such a unique history. For example, 19 years in the Israel Defense Fo- uh, Force as a lieutenant colonel. Professor of Law, co-director of the Center for Global Justice. He teaches criminal procedure, international law, global perspectives on counterterrorism. And one of the reasons I wanted to get him on the line here was uh, his his focus on religion and terrorism and how he can um, basically teach us more about what's really going on with terrorism. Uh, Amos Giora, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. I mean, I feel like I know you well because I've watched you for about two hours yesterday. And I was amazed at what you have to go through just to talk about your specialty. I I watched you at uh, the University of Chicago and just some of the incredible tension that you that you have in a regular speech. Uh, There I had I was there. I had to walk out. Yeah. I mean, it was scary. And so part of that is because you deal with a lot of the hottest topics right now, drone issues, terrorism, uh, basically deciding when is okay, you know, or at least creating some of the standards uh, and arguments around drone issues, religious extremism. So talk to us. I mean, terrorism, how, how do you define it? I define terrorism as an act by an individual or individual's in order to advance one of four causes, religious, social, political, and economic, in order to advance any of those four from the perspective of the terrorist or terrorists, innocent civilians are legitimate targets. And mm. from their perspective, whether they kill or injure or just commit an act of terrorism, uh, from their perspective, it's a win-win because their purpose is to uh, impact government policy, and if people die, fine. People don't die, also fine, because they view this as a very long-term process. You and I, in terms of a Western civilization, view life as a, a immediate gratification today, today, not tomorrow. Right. From the perspective of right, from the perspective of terrorists, they take a very long-term view. If today didn't succeed, that's okay. There's always tomorrow. If tomorrow doesn't succeed, there's always next year. And if next year doesn't succeed, that's okay because there's five years down the road. Hmm. And they just view the the human experience from a perspective that's very different from you and I. Yeah. Is it um and, and this goes back, I mean I know you've written the book on it, but religious religion and terrorism just explain that to us. Some of us can't fathom uh the 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 perspective of terrorism being a part of a religious belief set. Teach us about that. So while serving you mentioned I served in the Israel Defense Forces while serving in the IDF um, in various capacities, I had the opportunity to, quote-unquote, engage with and meet with um, terrorists, Jewish and Palestinian alike. Um, 
and and I was always intrigued as to what motivates them, what's called the why question. Mm -hmm. And in never say 100%, but in a significant percentage of, of cases in the context of my conversations with them, it became very clear to me that religion or religious extremism or their articulation of religion served as the primary motivation for their uh, acts of terrorism. And I came to the conclusion that religious extremism is a powerful, I don't know if primary, but clearly a powerful motivator around the world for acts of terrorism. And if you look, you know, look at the Middle East today and you'll see ISIS, or more accurately, ICE, clearly seeing themselves as establishing a new caliphate, and it's all uh, religious, religiously motivated and religiously predicated. And you and I might think that they are usurping religious text and religious scripture. They will tell you incorrect. What they're really doing is implementing and articulating exactly what their understanding of scripture is. Hmm. We view it as a perversion of Islam, for instance. They view it as absolutely honoring Islam. Interesting. And, and they feel it to the core that they are living their belief set. In the same way that um, the Jewish terrorists who, for instance, the, 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 he, the, it's like Amir, Yigal Amir, who assassinated then Prime Minister Rabin, mm-hmm. firmly believed that he was acting in the name of religion and acting in accordance with what rabbis had incited him to do or ordained him to do what I would call incitement. Um, to do, and in the same way that here in the United States we've had uh, Christians commit acts of terrorism in terms of how they understand Christianity. So it's, it's not exclusive to Islam, it's not exclusive to Judaism, and it's not exclusive to Christianity. All three faiths, all three monothe- monotheistic faiths, have individuals who firmly believe that in order, in order to honor their understanding of their faith, violence is legitimate. If you if you are basing your your view in your uh, religious faith and and belief set, it seems like there really could never be an end to this until you eradicate all of that belief. Well, well, that's that's an interesting question. So I I remind you that I believe it was in September that President Obama, when in a speech he gave about ISIS, said the U.S. policy is to degrade and destroy Destroy, ISIS. Right. Right. So I, with all due respect to the President of the United States, I have no idea what it means to degrade an idea. You can't destroy no, a an paradigm. idea. Right. right. That's right. Um, and obviously, as we, we by now all well know and see, ISIS is firmly com- committed um, to their convictions. And I'm not exactly sure what President Obama meant. Maybe it was mere rhetoric, but it's, it's disingenuous rhetoric because you're not going to destroy an idea in the same way, again, that we in Israel deal with, with Jewish terrorism. And here in the United States, obviously, there are Christians who are committed to um, a, a violent understanding and articulation of their faith. Is that compatible? Well, that's, a, that's a different kind of question. I mean, there are different thoughts out there in terms of, can you, for instance, quote-unquote, de-radicalize? Can you convince someone, yes, to be religious, but not to be a religious extremist? That's a complicated question, and it's obviously an important one to ask, because given the fact that acts of terrorism are committed by religious extremists, it's important to ask ourselves, can we de-radicalize? I spend time dealing with those who try, seek to de-radicalize. Um, there are different schools of thought as to how, define, how you define effectiveness and whether it really is possible to convince someone that their understanding of their faith is ultimately um, counterproductive. But mm-hmm. if you're committed to a particular faith and its application implementation, I'm not convinced that you can convince them otherwise. Yeah, and it seems, I mean, it seems like one of the ways to... Uh 
to, if you're going to de-radicalize, is at least point out that there's radicalization. <laughs> like, uh, I know President Obama was very careful, I, and probably speaking to numerous different audiences in doing so, about calling it Islamic extremism. But you just did very quickly say there's Christian extremism, there's Jewish extremism, and there's Islamic extremism. Does it help or hurt the argument, as, as an expert in the field, does it help or hurt the argument when we won't call it Islamic extremism? I, I, find, I find the president's uh, refusal, failure, pick your poison, uh, to, to use the term Islamic extremism or Islamic terrorism uh, to be puzzling at best. I don't know what at worst, but I, um, I think he's doing a disservice. I think um, honesty is essential in the context of dealing with terrorism and explaining terrorism to the public. Um, when the president says that ISIS does not represent Islam, from their perspective, from their perspective, um, there's no doubt that they are clear about this. "Quote unquote." Who is he to tell them what is Islam? Right? He's not. Nice. He's not Islamic, and he, it's not from their perspective. It's not for him to determine who is and who is not a Muslim. And when he refuses to use the term Islamic terrorism and says ICE is not um, is not Islam, I would think from their perspective um, that's an absolute head scratcher because from their perspective they absolutely mm-hmm. are true Muslims and are absolutely um, applying and implementing what the, from their perspective what the Quran teaches for the president to, to deny that. Um, let's leave it as a head scratcher. Yeah. No, I, I, I've always kind of felt that way. And I mean, I think he's trying to make sure that Islam in general understands that we're behind him. Our war is not with Islam, except our war is with extremism. And you beautifully did it in, in a bunch of different discussions that I saw online yesterday. There is there there are there are Jewish extremists. There are Christian extremism, and we've Absolutely. got to fight the extremes, not necessarily the norms. And we have to recognize that that there are people of faith who have an, an extremist articulation of that faith, and there's no reason to hide behind um, what I would call political correctness, political caution, and that's what the president is doing. Yeah. And I just find that you know disingenuous and problematic. Yeah, we're talking with Amos Giora, who. Again, um, he he really is a professional. When you think about it, incredibly uh, well-versed, um, has written so many different articles and publications on a variety of different topics. We're picking his brain when it comes to terrorism. When we come back, I, I want to know more about how do you, as a state, fight a non-state uh, enemy? How do you fight terrorism in, that, you know, that has no borders per se? Also want to get into a little bit more about drones as well. Find out uh, what he can teach us about that. Amos Giora, up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Terrorism, we are discussing, really, from the inside, what uh, what really can be done. How do we go about handling an enemy as a state, the state of the United States? How does the, the U.S. handle a, an enemy without boundaries, without borders? I mean, most of our wars, we were fighting a country. 
Now we're fighting a paradigm of extremism, right, without a border. And, I mean, sure, they're trying to create a caliphate. ISIS is. Um, but we've seen that uh, this this makes it a little more complicated. We've asked our guest, uh, Amos Giora, to join us. And Amos is a professor of law, co-director of the Center for Global Justice at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, and um, teaches uh, Global Perspectives on Counterterrorism, also another course on Religion and Terrorism, and has has basically... He's done this in real life after serving 19 years in the Israel Defense Forces. He has two parents, survivors of the Holocaust, as as well as uh, you name it. Um, just he's written a book in pretty much every category you can imagine when it comes to terrorism and counterterrorism. So, Amos Giora, welcome to the show again. Thank you very much. <clears throat> how do we handle this again? Uh, uh, how does a state take on a non-state? And what are the rules? And what are the rights of terrorism? We always there was a big discussion years ago. Are we supposed to treat them like enemy combatants, or are we supposed to treat them like criminals that have broken a law? I think point number one. You ask you ask a terrific question, which has multiple answers, but because time is short. From my perspective, rule number one in the context of um, fighting a non-state actor, a terrorist organization. It's important to recall that terrorists have rights, and the moment we forget that terrorists have rights and we conduct ourselves in violation of that, we quote-unquote become just like them. Hmm. Now, the upside of that is that sounds good. It sounds good morally. It makes us feel good. The downside of that is that it imposes what is called um, self-imposed restraints on ourselves. Um, I'm well aware of, of the difficulty and complexity of that because, as you mentioned, I you know was involved in, in the legal and policy aspects of operational counterterrorism. But I genuinely believe, in terms of rule number one, that we must recognize and respect that terrorists have rights. Mm. Rule number two, or principle number two, is there's an absolute requirement to respect principles of international law in terms of how we conduct operational counterterrorism. Rule number three is that we must articulate and implement what I call criteria based person-specific counterterrorism. Point number four is we must understand that not all operational counterterrorism measures will be effective. We must be very <clears throat> honest in articulating and understanding that there are days where the terrorists will have the upper hand and they will kill more of us than we will kill of them. And last but not least, we must understand that this is, um, quote-unquote, the new 100-year war, this is not going to end. I go back to my criticism of President Obama's degrade and destroy. That's not going to happen. And if, and if there's no ISIS tomorrow, there'll be something else on, on Thursday. Mm. This is a very long-term conflict. But in terms of you know taking these five points and summarizing it, 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 what it really comes down to is what I call the B word, the absolute requirement to balance between national security and individual rights. It's extremely difficult but there really is no alternative in terms of how a democracy conducts counterterrorism. It really changes the game, doesn't it? Because we, we, we're not fighting a war that's going to be done in three years. We're fighting a war, or ten even so far. We're fighting a war that is a hundred-year war. Is that predominantly because we're fighting a paradigm? We're fighting a, a perception, a thought? First of all, I'm very careful with the word war because— War has particular meanings in the context of international law, mm -hmm. because according to international law, a war can only be between states. 
and there is no there's no state of ISIS or there's right. no state of Hezbollah or state of Hamas. <laughs> so this is a conflict between a state and a non-state actor. The Israeli Supreme Court calls it armed conflict short of war. I'm not sure exactly what that means, you're but right. so not quite war. Um, but you're right. It's not um, like the Second World War where there was a beginning and an end, you know, MacArthur on the USS Missouri accepting the, the, the defeat of the, the surrender of the Japanese army. No terrorist organization is going to wave that, that you know, that white handkerchief and say, you know, uh, we're done, reboot, let's all be friends now. It's just not going to happen. And that's why we need to understand the very, very long-termness of this. Mm-hmm. And that requires, in terms of, um, of investment, obviously significant resources, but not only money. It also is a cultural shift in terms of, or social shift, cultural shift, in terms of recognizing that this is not going to end on, um, make up a date, August 15th, 2015. Right. It's going to go on and on and on. There'll be peaks and valleys. There'll be ups and downs, good days, bad days, good years, bad years. Um, you'll have a surge in Iraq that's effective. You'll have a surge that's not so effective. But, but, and the but here is complicated, particularly in the context of American politics, is it's very difficult for a politician, whichever party, Democrat, Republican, Tea Party, Yellow Party, whatever party, and to go on TV and say, my fellow Americans, this is a long haul. This will take years. This may take decades. That's not um, kind of an, uh, a winnable, electable phrase to right, use. Right, nobody's wanting that one. That's exactly right. Um, but that's really what this is, is this is a long haul, mm. long slog. And, and I think that's I think that's what I really appreciated about how straight shooting you were, because to know it's there's a, a long, you know, a long haul here. Um, it, it almost seems like we don't even as a culture have the right paradigm or terms or concepts about how to even combat this. Like we still try to battle this, I guess, on a political front. But that we can be as political as we want to be, but it has nothing to do with our security, per se. And I noticed one thing that you define very clearly is politically correct, for example, isn't always secure. And our our attacks won't necessarily, uh, you know, resemble the attacks that happen in Israel. But you did mention the future of this is going to be more kind of homegrown type of extremist lone wolf kind of attacks? Is that where you believe we are more vulnerable? Yeah, I'm, I'm very careful with, with, with the phrase lone wolf, because um, lone wolf suggests or implies somebody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to do such and such and such and such. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that that kind of person, with very, very, very few exceptions, exists, because I, I do believe that even an individual who acts alone, first of all, has been because of social media, has been impacted, incited by cyber incitement. Um, so the whole idea of a lone wolf, I, I'm not sure is, is accurate. I think, for instance, if you think about the brothers who, who committed the terrible act, um, you know, the Boston Marathon. Yeah. So the older brother goes back um, to the Caucasus and, and meets with who he meets with, is clearly radicalized, comes back, radicalizes his brother. So in that context, for instance, I, I wrote an article in which I call this the new form of terrorism, which is local global terrorism. So they commit an act here, they live in the United States, but they are influenced by an external force, which is the, the global terrorism, but they bring it here to the United States. In that context, local global or a hybrid form of terrorism um, is much more complicated because it has both external and internal aspects to it. Right. And and so you sense that, I mean, the local global is happening more. We've seen 
versions of it in Canada, in France, in totally. I mean, so totally. it's happening. That's exactly and, right. And like you, you, you distinguish even the, the the terrorists don't need to hit the United States. They they're succeeding. I mean, Canada's been hit. France has been hit. I mean, London. All of these areas are are being impacted. So for the terrorists, that this is all a win. Um, I agree with you that there are, there are specific wins. I think from from the terrorist perspective, the attack on Charlie Hebdo and then the the, the murder in the um, in the in the super in the kosher supermarket in Paris. From the terrorist perspective, um, that was a absolutely that was a success. But I'm careful to say I'm going to respectfully disagree. I wouldn't say they're winning. I would say that they're again what I said earlier. There are days where they're mm-hmm. successful, effective. There are days where they're less effective, successful. Um, but the Paris attack. Uh, you know, I, you know, to tie things together, the first attack on Charlie Hebdo was clearly they intended to kill those involved in, in the publishing of the cartoon. Right. The attack on the, on the kosher supermarket was clearly intended to to kill Jews to go shopping at the kosher supermarket. Last month, the administration called it a rand called that attack on the kosher supermarket a random act of terrorism. Again, mm. in the context of political correctness and, and political calculation. I personally found that to be, um, I don't want to use the word offensive, but to, to absolutely um, misstate the reality because the terrorist who committed that act was int- fully intended to kill Jews. For the administration right. to call that a random act of terrorism against random targets yeah. was to fundamentally misstate that particular act of terrorism. Again, and I think, I think in the context of explaining to the public we need to be honest about what these acts of terrorism are. I mean, you're already an avowed enemy, right? I mean, we already know uh, Israel is the number one target, right? I mean, it's it's isn't that just and clearly it, and stated? And it, obviously, Israel, yes, but also in the context of, yeah. of acts of terrorism in Europe. But there are two, two different targets in Europe. Target number one, for instance, the, the supermarket was the supermarket. I mean, Jews who go shopping at the, the kosher supermarket. But there's a second target, no less worrisome than the first target, and that is those who are expressing free speech. I mean, the editors of Charlie Hebdo decided to publish the cartoon of Muhammad mm-hmm. by targeting the editor and the others involved in, the, in that journal. The, the terrorists were attacking the very essence of Western civilization, which is free speech. In the same way that there was an attack recently in, in Denmark, in which the target there was um, a cartoonist um, who, you know, draws what he drew, what he drew, that, which maybe people find offensive. But the fact that the cartoon may be offensive under no sense of Western civilization, as we understand Western civilization, um, justifies, legitimizes, rationalizes the killing or the attempted killing of that individual. Yeah. I mean, this is this is and it seems like, though, each of these uh, situations is is increasing awareness to a point that, oh, oh, this is real. They, oh, they they are trying to attack free speech. It's once we attacked the media. I mean, all of a sudden, boy, it took it to a completely different level. So maybe over time, I guess we're we're getting more and more information about this. When um, we'll take a break. When we come back, Amos, I'd love to ask you about uh, drone strikes. Um, I mean, that is such a heated debate right now because some might believe we're crossing the line and becoming terrorists ourselves because of. Our, our targeted drone strikes. And I know that you're, you have very specific criteria for how that should go down. Also, I want to talk about Guantanamo Bay. Um, again, might be an, an area where 
we didn't know what to do with these people, and we may have ended up violating their rights. And in turn, like you suggested, uh, we might be becoming like them just simply because we're not affording them their rights. We'll take a break when we come back more with Amos Giora from uh, the University of Utah uh, Law School, teaching us about religion and terrorism and just where are we when it comes to our safety. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line, we have Amos Giora, who is uh, an expert in counterterrorism and is teaching us, I guess, just some insight, the background on on some of the stories that we hear making the news. And again, there's never enough time on the show to just be able to give you everything you need, but wanted to get you some expert insight into terrorism overall. Uh, again, Amos Giora, I appreciate you being back with us. It's a pleasure. And um, I, I, I love how careful you are. I mean, be, and I know this is your business, and b- the business of making sure we're saying the right thing and, and being very clear about it, because for you, this, I mean, this isn't about rhetoric and throwing out a bunch of, you know, stuff to incite and make people angry there's a real there's a real art or science actually to this and a law that we have to follow do you feel like when it comes down to guantanamo bay i mean again it feels like we didn't quite know what we were doing we knew we needed to capture these people and we didn't quite know how to handle them how how are we doing there i'll tell you uh, i don't know how much time we have matt i'll take you a, a Get about long 10 minutes I'll make a long story very quick. In okay. March of 2002, I was sent by the IDF um, to Washington to meet with those who were involved in, the, in establishing Guantanamo with the idea of recommending to them that perhaps Guantanamo is not going to be the best idea. <laughs> um, after a long day of meetings in which I was, I'm saying this cynically, I was remarkably successful. Oh, wow. Right? They listened. Obviously not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? not. Obviously not. Right. Um, um, we went out and we did what people in the military do, which is uh, we broke bread and drank beers. I was... Um, <laughs> told over a couple of cold beers that um, when I gave them my speech about we must protect terrorist rights, that I'm totally and, un- and fundamentally wrong and I don't really understand. Okay. A year later, um, I called the person who, with whom I had broken bread and drank beer with, and I said, well, how are you doing? He said, you know, i got to tell you, Giora, you were spot on correct. Hmm. We got it wrong. You were right. And I said, okay, and so what's the administration going to do? And they said nothing because the administration, referring to the Bush administration, is not in a position to admit that they were wrong. Fast uh. forward. Fast forward. Yeah. I remind all of us. I remind all of us that when President Obama was uh, Senator Obama, he was um, vociferous in his opposition to Guantanamo. Right. I remind that when President Obama was candidate Obama, he said, when, when elected, I will close Guantanamo. And I remind all of us that President Obama, as President Obama, has failed to, go, to close Guantanamo. Yeah. Guantanamo is a stain on America. There's no, there are no answer, no ifs, and there are no buts. The failure to close Guantanamo is, a, is an absolute and utter failure of leadership. The decision to open Guantanamo initially <clears throat> reflects what I call a panic response to, to a terrible act of terrorism. There's no doubt 9-11 was an awful act of terrorism. There's no doubt. But the opening of Guantanamo, what then-Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld defined as the worst of the worst, and then added, even if, even if acquitted, they will still be held in Guantanamo, 
and um, to to date, here we are in the, uh, March of 2015, a mere handful of people have actually been convicted by the military military tribunals that were established in Guantanamo, um, an utter failure. Mm. Add to that, in the same way that Guantanamo it was is an utter failure, um, the torture-based interrogation regime established and implemented by the Bush administration in response to 9-11, from my perspective, violates international law, constitutional law, if you will, criminal law, in any sense of morality. The question is... Um, from the perspective of you and your listeners, the question is, what have we learned from all this? Yeah, right. right. How do right? How, say tomorrow morning there'll be another 9/11. Are we going to, you know, same old, same old? And and, and whichever administration, Democrat, Republican, will they implement the same kind of draconian measures? Because they will have failed to really thought through the mistakes made by the Bush administration. Um, and some of them, obviously, the same policies implemented by Obama, though I would like to believe there's no torture today. But yes, Guantanamo is still in effect. Um, and one of the things that really worries me is whether or not politicians, national leaders, are really equipped and willing to do a lessons learned from previous administrations and put in, have ready, you know, plan B, plan C in the context of a next terrorist attack. And I think that's an open question. Yeah. And that all as an introduction to what you wanted to discuss, which is drone. Yeah. So, right, you mentioned in, in the teaser that I'm an, I have been involved in what we in Israel call targeted killing decision-making, which is here in America, what is drones. So I absolutely advocate for a drone policy and a targeted killing policy. I think it, it's, it's necessary, it's justifiable, um, and it can be effective, but and the but is enormous. Yeah, my support of it is predicated on, on caveats of criteria-based decision making, in which there are very narrow and specific um, requirements that must be met by the administration. And more than that, because I am deeply skeptical about executive power, I wrote co-wrote an article with a colleague of mine in which we recommended the establishment of a drone court, which would, be, which would require the administration, the executive branch, to proactively come before the court, um, show the court and an attorney for the intended target, without the intended target knowing that he's being represented in a court, mm-hmm. to show the intelligence information, and to convince the court in a real hearing, it's not ex parte, like the, unlike the FISA court, but in a real hearing, that the intelligence information indicates that this particular person poses an imminent threat to American national security. Devoid of meeting that strict scrutiny test, the court would not authorize the intended hit, and I think it's absolutely essential in the context of how my lessons learned, if you will, of American drone policy initially established by President Bush and implemented by President Obama, that devoid of this external restraint on the executive branch, American drone policy, from my perspective, will continue to have high collateral damage with um, profound questions as to its effectiveness, both short-term right. and long-term. So one of the one of the differences, and, and this is where the morality comes in, which is, it's so interesting, because um, you're not, you're, you're disappointed, um, kind of, you, you, you understand the U.S. response, and yet you're disappointed. We were hit hard. And yet we reacted and continue almost to react instead of more proactively maybe learning and changing the policies as we go. These policies need to change. Um, We've got about two minutes. Just teach us 
what I mean, at what point? I mean, because part of the argument is, well, yeah, you can't. You know, we have to do what we have to do to fight the enemy, but you're always trying to hold a really high moral standard so all rights are, are, are protected, I guess, and yet also so that you become, so you have moral authority. The idea of, of, of the, call it the high road, yeah, the high moral road. high road, it's an, it's a, I truly believe it's a laudable goal. I um, with complexities, because again, go back to what I said to you at the beginning, Matt, it imposes restraints on you. Mm-hmm. But I think th- let's call this a triangle. A triangle is, is comprised in terms of t- counterterrorism, it's comprised of three different things. There are questions of morality, there are questions of legality, and there are questions of effectiveness. For counterterrorism to be able to move forward, for a rational based discussion about counterterrorism, we have to be able to view all three in the context of intelligence gathering, intelligence analysis, and ultimately operational decision-making. I think that this triangle of effectiveness, morality, legality, based on my experience, both as someone who's involved in this and today in terms of somebody who writes on this, that triangle is, can't be viewed as a silo, each unit separately, but must be viewed in an integrative fashion. Hmm. I well understand that from the perspective of, of decision makers, it's hard to explain to a public this triangle. Um, I see no way forward, and I think it really does behoove national leaders to be, frankly, open and honest with the public about, for instance, this triangle, about the need to have criteria-based approach to explain to the public there will be, what I said earlier, good days, bad days, and call this a long haul or a long slog, but devoid of that open and frank conversation with the public, we create a false paradigm of degrade and destroy. Right. And I find, just to, if I may conclude with that, yeah. I find found then and continue to find the president's failure to be honest with the public, the failure to call it Islamic extremism, the calling the attack in Paris random targets. It's actually in terms of, of educating the public, you use the word educate a great deal. Yeah. In terms of educating the public, it's doing a, a fundamental disservice to the public by not honestly engaging them. Yeah, and, and it almost seems like it delays the learning, right? It actually decreases education, and, you know, it's totally. just more, you know, misinformation. Well, Amos, Giora, we so appreciate your insight, and, uh, and again, thanks for studying something that most of us just don't want to learn. <laughs> it's, it's my pleasure. It really is. It's, uh, it's very... Uh, it's just appreciated because when you think about it, morality, come on, in, in these types of engagements and the idea, too, that this isn't going away, folks. This is a long slog and we've got to be learning. And honestly, we're just children. We're infants in this type of battle, in this type of uh, situation. So let's start learning. Let's even push more on our own leaders to, to not just supposedly educate us, but learn. We'll take a break, my friends. Uh, Next hour, more ideas, more tools right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two 
We're getting on it, my friends. Man, have we got a show for you. From last hour, in-depth discussion about terrorism, to this hour, an in-depth discussion about the other destructive potential problem in our lives, technology and cell phones. The silent killer. In many ways, it'll kill you. It'll kill your relationships. We'll be talking about that a little bit later today. But uh, I'm telling you, my sons, holy cow, introduced me to an app called Flinch. Have you heard of that? No. What, what do you What do? you do? We were playing it at dinner you, last night. You punch night. each other? No. You, uh, you log in and then it, face, it FaceTimes another human being on this earth. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and you are both then staring so at each other. Somebody you've never met. It's chat roulette. It's chat roulette, but what it is is it's it's stare it's the staring game. To see, and the first okay. person to flinch or laugh is out. So just some random person uh-huh. who also has the app. It is the funniest thing you've ever seen because wow. all of a sudden like you're you're with Jerry in Chicago <laughs> in his living room and he's just looking at you. And um, it's kind of creepy. Yeah. But Sounds <laughs> so like there's, it. The creep, <laughs> Sounds there's the creepy effect. But then if you laugh or you move your head or you flinch at all, the software picks it up and you lose. And then it keeps a running score mm-hmm. probably. And then it gets you another one immediately. That's interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. And um, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> but I guess thousands of people all night are just playing, you know, stare down. And this brings us back to the fact that we have these powerful computers. Yeah. And we're using them for ridiculous things. <laughs> Sure, we could have, you know, you could be calling grandma yeah. and talking to her face-to-face, but no. Or instead, you, you could be learning something. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of resources, but instead you're, no, you're flinching playing. with Jerry from Chicago or whoever he is. <laughs> Candace in Connecticut. Along those lines, yeah. outside of, you know, 47 Republican senators talking with Iran, mm-hmm. the, what, the frat in uh, Oklahoma, Blah. racism there. Yeah. The other big news... Apple. Yeah, they're back. They reintroduced a product that they introduced about three, four months ago. Uh, I think they call this the second introduction. Third introduction will be actually when they hit the market with it. Next month. Next month. So the Apple Watch, mm-hmm. a uh, a device that only works efficiently if you have an iPhone. Yeah. If you have an Android, I wouldn't buy the Apple Watch. Well, you go buy something like the <laughs> Samsung yeah. uh, Wear, I think it's called. Where? Where? Huh? Okay. Uh, there's plenty of different devices that sure. you can use, but with the iPhone, you can get a specific one here with the Apple Watch. It prices from three fifty to ten thousand dollars. That's a that's quite a range, depending on the materials. That it's is three fifty is aluminum a range. There's a mid range that's steel, and then if you want to buy an heirloom device, that really is an heirloom because after about two years, it's obsolete. But you know, ten thousand yeah. dollars. My, my my babies didn't cost ten thousand dollars. I know. So my watch would cost more than my children? If you bought that one. no one They're probably going to make a couple hundred of them and they'll really, be... I think I'd rather have a kid. Yeah, I guess. But um, I don't know. Basically, you can get your... You can look at phone calls. You can look at texts. You can look at messages and other notifications on the watch. As I read on Twitter, it's the Apple Watch is a device that's going to help you make the decision if you to, if you want to pull your phone out of your pocket or not. 
That's really what it comes down do, to. Do we need a device to do that? I don't know. I don't, I don't you, think so. But It seems like you would pull the phone out of your pocket because you need to use the phone. But I think with like most devices, we don't understand its potential. Because mm-hmm. when the iPad came out and these yeah. tablets, and yeah. everyone comes out with tablets, I wasn't really sure what the point was. It looked like a big phone. Yeah. Until you use it and you're like, oh, right. It's not a laptop and it's not my phone. I want something else. And it kind of fills this And void. I want it on my wrist. Well, I don't know if you want that. It well, depends. It seems like you don't need a device to tell you when to pull the device. It's like having a device to tell you when you need to you know, adjust your belt. Yes. You should just adjust your belt. It, it, it's the ultimate accessory for a phone. Because you have to have the phone for it it's to a, work. It's a phonessory. Also, the part that has me kind of angry, the Apple Watch app yeah. There's a new software update for the iPhones, and now you're going to have an app on your phone you can't get rid of. Perma app. Perma app. So I'll just take that, shove it into my Apple apps folder with the stocks. With the other perma apps And the, that you don't the weather use. app I don't use yeah. and all this other stuff. Man. Did you know, though, that this is not the first Apple Watch? That they actually released an Apple Watch back in 1995. Did they really? Yeah. That Apple released. Was it a calculator? Because I think I had that one. No, actually, it doesn't look that good. It's kind of a go- goofy-looking watch. Oh, weird. But they, they released it as an incentive to, to buy their new, um, I think it was uh, a new Mac computer. A, Mac, a Macintosh. Oh, okay. Yeah, a Macintosh. All right. So, huh. yeah, it's this, this, so this, this new Apple new Watch technology. should be the Apple Watch 2 or something that's like a that. Great, that's a great point. Yeah, it's so crazy. You hop online, you can that's see everyone. There's a bunch of videos of people playing with the watch, and you can see how it works. I'm, I'm already, I'm pretty much out. I'm out. Yeah. Like on Shark Tank when they're like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. Nah, I'm not going to go with this one. A survey shows that gun ownership in the United States is down. Really? Yeah. Says the general social survey released in 2014 last week. That's the data they got. They released the survey last week. Mm-hmm. Shows that the number of Americans who live in a home with at least one gun is lower than ever before. Just 32% of Americans own firearms or live with someone who does. Tying a record low from 2010. Well, it seems with all of the news we have of people getting killed and shot that maybe they're just killing each other. They say this is a steep decline from the numbers in, uh, from the 70s and 80s, huh. which close to half of America had a gun in their home. Now, granted, we have a bigger population. Sure. All that kind of stuff comes into factor there. According to the AP, it is believed the drop is tied to fewer people hunting. That's probably very true. But I found that, that to be kind of an interesting... Uh, stat there. Mm. I wonder if, if they divided it up by state, if there would be states that had more and then states that had less and that evened out into bringing the whole national average down. Because I imagine like New York yeah. and, and different states like that, they, they probably naturally have less guns in the homes than in the past because of legislation that's been passing recently and such. I know people with multiple gun lockers, so I, I was really surprised by this. Yeah, they yeah. have like 25 so, guns in their house. <laughs> yeah, when you need like the 25-gun locker holder. I know a guy with a cannon. Really? He built a cannon. It's in his garage. Can you imagine the talk? <laughs> Honey, um... I don't know if that qualifies as a gun, but... You know how I like guns and all. What if I got a cannon? What if I got a cannon? Thinking you know, of getting a howitzer. What, that's how you get. That's how you get her to want it. Is you say, "I bought you a cannon," and you give her a cannon. And it's for you, hun. A cannon. Every woman wants a cannon. That's how you talk her into it. And then she's like, "I think this gets for you." No, it's for you, honey. Really. In Take another another story, three senators plan to introduce a bill Tuesday, so today, to end a federal ban on medical marijuana, the first such legislation in the history of our country. Uh, those senators are Cheech, Senator Cheech and Chong. 
Senator uh, Republican Rand Paul. There we go. Democrat Cory Booker and Kristen Gillibrand. Interesting. It would allow patients, doctors, and businesses in states that have already passed medical marijuana laws to participate in those programs without fear of federal prosecution. So it's not to legalize it necessarily across the country, but, but it, where it is legal, then the federal... Because yeah. right now there's this conflict where, like in Denver, it's legal, but federally it isn't. So technically the FBI could go in and round everybody up, but they don't. And it's deferring the rights back to the states, right? So Correct. the feds are getting out of it. Like, let us get out of this. If you pass the law, then it's we're fine with it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, some would say, why is Rand Paul doing that? But I'm assuming it's... States' rights. States' rights. Get it back to the state. He's actually staying on message. A lot of times Republicans <laughs> or Democrats, for that matter, end up yeah. On one issue, they're this. This they take this stand, and on yeah. this, they don't take the same stand on well, another issue. Well, so interesting, Cory Booker and Rand Paul. I mean, that's a pretty diverse group of right. people: Republican, Democrat. See, they're reaching across the aisle. Yeah, on something that isn't. But see, you know, the, well, the problem is because it says the word marijuana. Yeah, that's going to mess everyone up. Red flags. I mean, literally, it will mess people up. Interesting. Well, good. So there's some progress, I guess. There's, at least states are gaining some rights, powers. And if you need medical marijuana, maybe it just got easier for you. Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about smartphone addiction. How to let go of your phone. Do you feel like you are addicted to your telephone? Max Ogles is going to join us. He's a, a blogger and uh, loves discussing certain topics on psychology, technology, behavior change. He's going to be teaching us some skills, maybe some ideas for how to let go of your phone. Maybe also how to identify if you truly are addicted to your technology. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stay with us right after the break. We'll be back with more. Yes, I love technology. But not as much as you, you see. But I still love technology. Always and forever. Our love is like a flock of doves. Flying up to heaven above. Always and forever. Always and forever. <laughs> we appreciate James for singing that song. Uh, our great board op uh, singing Always and Forever from Napoleon Dynamite. That is uh, one of my favorite songs of all time. Shows you the level of my intellect. But uh, I love technology. That was the love song he was singing on his wedding day to his beautiful bride. But not as much as you. Anyway, joining us right now is Max Ogles is here. Max uh, is a blogger. And if you and the founder of MaxOgles.com, uh, he blogs on the topics of uh, habits and psychology and technology, behavior change. He's also the author of the book Boost, Creating Good Habits Using Psychology and Technology. We found him. There's an article he wrote on TheNextWeb.com that is an article about how to stop checking your phone like an addict. And uh, he's here today to teach us maybe how to uh, become less... So so less attached to our telephones. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to meet you. We are we are messed up, and now we're going to have a watch. Are you kidding me? Right. So not only do we have a phone, now we need a watch to tell us when to pull the phone out. We are just we're just like tethered, aren't we? 
Uh, yeah, I heard on the earlier segment he said, well, uh, you know, what if you can you can check the watch to decide whether or not you want to pull out your phone? And I said, yeah. well, what if you don't want to check your watch or your phone? Yeah. You should just keep them keep right. both in your pocket. That's exactly right. Then what do you do? They will need another device. Right. But the problem with it is because there is uh, – there's the tech side of it and all the advancements. I think that's fantastic. Great stuff. By the way, have you ever seen the app um, Flinch? No, I just, I just heard you speaking about it. I won't Crazy. Look it up. It's really funny. It's actually awkward, um, but worth looking at for sure. Worth spending hours on. Um, but one of the things, I guess, about the technology is we don't even necessarily know psychologically what's happening. All of this is so new to us, right? Right. We're only in this. What was it? First iPhone was in 07. Right, exactly. So we've got seven years of history here? Yeah, so I think um, we're only uh, 20 years into internet technology, and we're only you know seven or eight years into smartphone technology. The iPhone wasn't actually the first smartphone. Right. Um, and that just gives you a little perspective of how addicted we've become in such a short amount of time, and the idea that we really don't know what direction technology is headed in and mm-hmm. how it's going to affect our lives. I mean, I sit on the sofa with my wife in the evening, and I'm on Facebook, and she's on Pinterest, and I think, and I look over and I think, is this how it's going to be for the next 30 years? I know. It's, it's scary, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like, we are messed up. You make a really interesting point in your article. Um, the first car was built in 1986 by a German engineer named Carl Benz. It took 30 more years for cars to be widely available because of Henry Ford. But then you make a really interesting point. Not until 1968 did we make seatbelts mandatory. So it right. took 80-something years before we figured out – oh, actually more than that. Yeah, about 80 years before we figured out, man, um, we may be being harmed by these things. And it wasn't because people weren't dying when the car yeah. was early on oh, because yeah. plenty of people were dying and uh, you know the cars weren't going as fast. But you can still die in a car accident at 30 miles an hour, especially sure. if you don't have a seatbelt. Or especially they didn't if have you're roads. hit by the car. That's they didn't right. have roads or regulations and things like that. And so – it took you know it took a long time for us to just kind of figure out this is what the technology is doing to us and how this is how we need to well, address it. And think about how interesting that. How long do you think it will be before we'll need laws for our automobiles because of our cell phones? Right. I mean, all of a sudden, you can now text and you know not pay attention, and you can have everyone buckled in, but it won't matter if you're still not paying. Right. Attention. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's really an interesting thing. So, but we are addicted. I mean, to some degree or another, we're constantly checking our phone. Like you were saying, you're sitting on the sofa with your spouse and yet not connecting. What um, what are you seeing? What are the what's what's the deal? What's the what's the psychology of this? Why are we so impacted by it? Well, so I think there's a there's a habit loop. Um, there's a uh, we respond to a trigger. And that trigger fills some sort of need that we feel psychologically. And a lot of times, especially with smartphones, that need is just boredom. It's We're a, bored. It's a feeling. Yeah, so the trigger is an internal trigger, and it's just, I feel bored. What do I do next? Yeah. Pull out my phone. So I'm going to flinch with somebody. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, I've got nothing else to do. So yeah. I'm going to go meet 90 people for six seconds. It's and, so and try weird. to beat them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and try to outflinch them. But it's 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 an interesting idea, isn't it? We are bored. In fact – some of the research on like pornography addiction, two of the biggest drivers for why people look at pornography is um, boredom and anxiety. Right. So they're looking for the trigger. They're looking for their brain to make that fix of, oh, let's do that thing that we do when we're bored. Yeah, exactly. So technology very much falls into that. Yeah, there was actually a study published last year where they had participants walk into a room 
and they said, we're going to have you sit here for 15 minutes without doing anything. If you'd like, you can press this button that's going to give you an electric shock. And they found that a really high percentage of people would rather give themselves the shock than just sit there alone in their thoughts for 15 minutes. Are you? Yeah. (laughs) We are so messed up. Like, okay, you can either suffer pain. Right. But, you know, it'll be engaging. Or just sit there and meditate. Ah. (laughs) Isn't that weird? Is it? Do you think it's that we're so afraid? Is it that we don't know how to be alone? Or is that we are now, you know, habitualized to the phone that we know is going to create the chemistry? Yeah, I think it's the second. I think um, uh, I think there are still a lot of people that find um, enjoy being alone. They go up into the mountains so they can't, you know, have access to technology and things right. like that. But we we even even when you're there, you, you you might feel bored and reach for your phone and realize you can't use it. And so we've just created this atmosphere where. We always want to be entertained all the time. Yeah, we do, don't we? Yeah. That'll kill you. But you also, when you think about it, um, we we make it worse because we actually have settings on the iPhone to let us know when an email comes in. Yeah, exactly. And so it's almost like we're not even going to wait you know, an hour. We're going to get it instantly. I guess that creates the instant gratification. Right. Yeah, and the goal of most new apps is to become, you know, get on your homepage they they always try to get you to um, you know, automatically let the notifications yeah. enable themselves, and so their goal is to create that habit loop with you and and keep you engaged that way. See, it's funny we don't necessarily think of that though, do we? Like when we're buying an app, we don't think that the app is trying to make us addicted to it, right? But that, if you think about it, marketing wise, that's just smart marketing. That's how I know I can yeah, they, make money on you. They use a, a metric called um, monthly. Uh, I'm forgetting the metric now, but it's uh, monthly, you know, recurring users, mm-hmm. and so the more they have, you know, Facebook has recurring users on a daily basis, and that's their strongest metric. Are you serious? So it's it's re- it's interesting. I mean, Facebook. I know people that are checking it three, four times a day. Right. I check mine weekly. <laughs> you need to get on it. You I know. To, yeah. It's almost like I boy, I feel bad. And my wife's like, you really need to check your Facebook more because uh, people have asked you questions. <laughs> Oh, okay, um, but I know people that can't go to bed without looking through Instagram. Looking, I I get on uh, my Twitter feed now just to get news, right? And then I get on my Vine, no, my not my Vine, my Zeit magazine aggregator just to get more news. Sure, yeah. But I just have my favorite things. Um, but then I have the best. I don't know if you've heard of Ten Ten. It's the best it, game no. on earth. It's Tetris without all the competition. Uh, we have a really special sound effect we use. Every, anytime I say the word 1010, uh, it makes that noise. Have you ever played Deer Hunter 2014? No, I haven't. That's another sound we make. Uh, I was addicted to that for years, became one of the top hunters in the Congratulations. Inter- yeah, in the world. Never actually killed an animal, but killed a lot on my app. Um, it's the kinder, gentler hunting. So what are we supposed to do with this addiction? I mean, it's we're being paid off chemically, mm-hmm. yeah. But we're also losing our families, our relationships. We're losing stuff, right? What do we do? Yeah. So one of the uh, the best ways to sort of kill an addiction, especially like this, is to create friction in between uh, that moment when you think about the phone and when you actually get to the app. And so, different ways you could create friction are just creating distance between you and your phone, leaving your phone somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, making it more difficult to access your phone. So if you don't have a passcode, 
that one step makes it slightly more difficult for oh, you to get in your phone. Yeah. Um, for example, if you if you logged out of your email app every time you finished using it, then when you think about your email, you'll think, oh, I have to put in my passcode. I have to type in my password. And just those small steps. That's a great way to put it. In between. Yeah, just, you're creating friction. Yeah. Um, and there are, there are lots of ways to do that. You could move. Uh, you know, you could move the apps you use the most to a third screen on your phone. So you put go. them in a small folder like your stock uh-huh. apps. Yeah. Um, you could, it, yeah, you could create a password that, um, you know, is really hard to enter and takes yeah. a long time or you have to look it up actually before you can enter it and make it really difficult. It, it, it's, you know, that's not a bad idea. But see, everyone would then think, well, yeah, that's too hard. Right. right? The, 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 so part of this, I guess you're saying, is if you want to you know, overcome kind of the addictive cycle, you have to use a different brain. And the brain you're getting into is kind of more the neocortex, the high frontal lobe sure, brain yeah. instead of the, you know, the kind of the fight or flight and you know, mate brain that just right. gets all the chemistry. But I guess the cool thing you're saying really is it can be done, yeah. but you almost need to change patterns. And it, it's funny too. You don't even need to change a big pattern. You no. just need – Anything that makes it a little bit more uh, – you could just change your settings to um, have it go to the safety screen the, the, to lock in one minute instead right. of five minutes. Exactly. So the minute you set it down, it comes back up. Honestly, I just changed mine to five minutes because it locks too often. Uh-huh. And But it, it didn't dawn on me. By just doing that one move, I just made myself probably – more likely yeah, exactly. to keep going back to it. You could uh, disable notifications. On my phone, I have all the n- notifications disabled except for the phone itself okay. and then text messages because I want to be able to see if my yeah. wife is texting me. But um, other than that, I don't have any for Facebook or for Twitter or for email or anything like that. I just I check them naturally because I want to see them, but it's it's not pinging me to tell me, yeah. hey, you have to check me now. See, I intentionally don't even start a new game. Like 1010 was the first app I started in like eight months mm-hmm. because I'll get addicted. Right. And I realized that after becoming a world-class hunter Right. <laughs> on Deer Hunter 2014. Bing! Um, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're talking with Max Ogles. He's helping us break the addiction here. I mean, this is hard. How do you break some of the uh, technology addiction? One way to do it is put a little friction, just a little friction between that stimulus where you know you need to, oh, I got to get on my phone, and before you can actually get into the phone. A little friction there may slow down the process and disincentivize you. We'll take a break when we come back. More from Max on uh, Breaking the Habit. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Is your cell phone taking over your life? Is it taking over your relationships? Is it even impacting your health? You know what? A lot of the research says it is. It's the new drug, my friends. Joining us is Max Ogles. Max is a blogger. And if you go to Max Ogles, O-G-L-E-S dot com, Max Ogles dot com, 
You can learn more on topics of habits, psychology, technology, and behavior change. we got to take our lives back and put our phones in their place. He wrote a great article that uh, we found on a tech site called thenextweb.com. And the name of the website or the name of the article is How to Stop Checking Your Phone Like an Addict. He's already taught us one of the rules or tools is to create, um, what do you call it? Uh, Friction. Friction. But really, one of the things you get into a lot in this article is technoference, where the technology is interfering with life, whether it's your wife talking to her on the couch or whatever, or just getting good grades. Talk about that. What what are what's some of the research showing about interference of technology? Yeah, so there was actually a BYU uh, professor that did this research about technoference, and it's the idea that uh, at some point your uh, the te- the way you're using technology is interfering with the relationships that you have. So maybe it's as simple as my wife wants to ask me a question, and I say, "Hold on, I need to ch- I need to finish posting this photo." Yeah, and she just says, as simple. Well, what? Hold on. Yeah, what you're you're what. Your, your photo matters more than what I'm exactly, about to say. Yeah. And so if that's creating any sort of negative uh, interference in my relationship, then uh, the researcher actually showed that you know the quality of life decreases when there's in- increased technoference. And uh, just generally, psychologically, it it's impacts oh. your life. I, I can't tell you with my own clients how many times I've had somebody basically mention Facebook as as right. as a cause for divorce, like it's <laughs> impacting them, or just I mean, I've had people, you know, that's that game, um, Farmville, right? Where we we are so we're so backwards. We don't even have our own farms, but now we have a technology farm on Facebook, and we've got to go get our harvest in right before everything spoils, so that we can keep our our silly game going. But technoference, but the data actually shows it has. Decreased life satisfaction, low, uh, signs of depression. It's a big deal. Right. It really is. This isn't just somebody saying, oh, you got to be careful. This is There's real data behind it. There's also the tech neck. And I've actually been diagnosed with tech neck because I had a laptop. I went in. My neck was sore, major kind of ne- upper back pain, neck pain. And I just was telling him about all my pain. He saw how I couldn't move my head. And then the first question he asks is, do you have a laptop? Sure. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, you got tech, Nick. What is that? Talk about that. Yeah, so the idea is that if you're looking at a phone or you're looking down at your computer uh, and you're doing it for long periods of time or in the case with a phone, you're doing it like, – you could be doing it 50 or 100 times a day. Yeah. You're increasing the angle of your neck and that's putting extra force on your neck and it's straining your muscles so it's a repetitive stress injury just like it would be with – um, carpal tunnel. A lot of people have carpal tunnel from uh, typing and keyboards, and the same thing is happening to our like repetitive our activity with your hands. The same thing because your neck is cocked and your head is down. Right. A lot of times you're on your bed or you're in your on your couch in Vegville, <laughs> just killing yourself. And yet we're like, what? I, I can't tell you how my kids are all the time saying, "Man, Dad, my neck hurts." I'm like, well. Yeah, it's because you sit there like a dud. Um, and the keyboards. I mean, there, there's a lot of weird things. Again, the seatbelt wasn't invented until about 80-something years after. Um, we need to figure this out. I have a feeling we're going to create some problems. Yeah, I think there's a lot of actually skepticism around – when we talk about these problems, people are skepti- skeptical that they're really hurting us. Right. 
because we're so the phones are so new still and yeah. the internet is so new and people say well it doesn't affect my life that much um and really we're talking about probably the most severe problems that people are facing sure. right now but we still we don't even know what the long-term impacts are from mild use. Yeah. Well, especially socially. I mean, it used to be your kid would play video games and we were convinced that they would make his brain squishy and just right. horrible. And um, now they're flying drones. Um, <laughs> but the weird thing about it is we end up thinking, oh, it's not a big deal. But the funny thing about a video game is they were home. And probably had it, a friend over. Yeah, <laughs> and had a friend over. And so it was kind of social too. Now these people have their phone. And yet they're in a different – they can take them anywhere. They, I, I've seen my kids all sitting in a living room with all of their friends, none of them talking right, for like an it. hour. They might be texting even each other, but they're not talking. And I just look at them like how on earth could that not have an impact? I mean as somebody that studies relationships and teaches about relationships – this is my 10-year-old, my 12-year-old actually, that is figuring this out and learning to relate this way. Right. Yeah, I think uh, w- I, I didn't mention any of this in the article, but there's certainly um, studies and research that are being done to see how technology is affecting growth of youth and teenagers. Um, I did find um, an interesting study that related technology to how people perform in school, yeah. but that was for university students. And they found a you know a correlation between poor grades and high technology use. Really? And so there's there's obviously a, a negative impact of the technology and we you know we just need to kind of figure out what it is and in the meantime try to manage our use so that we're not letting it affect us. Talk about it's such a big deal that the researchers have put together a scale called the pump scale. PUMP, I guess, is an acronym for Problematic Usage of Mobile Phones. Right, exactly. So um, that just goes to show how terrible it is. It's so bad they have to have their own scale now. Right. They have to create a scale to (laughs) gauge how addicted people are. Uh, And there's even been some – it hasn't formally been done, but there's been some discussions and some proponents of the idea of listing uh, technology addiction as a formal addiction in the – you know, yeah. the, the APA. Yeah. yeah. Well, how weird is that? I mean, you, everybody has been, you know, driving down the freeway. You've got a slow driver in front of you. They're in the fast lane. Right. Uh, at least they are in Utah. And you pass them, you go around, and you, when you get to the side of them, they're on their cell phone. It's scary. They're texting. Do they not realize they're going 70 miles an hour? <laughs> like, they just, again, so in the pump scale... That seems like that would be on the 10 level of the pump scale. Yeah. Your life is in jeopardy. But, yeah. But I got to get this text out. When I see those people, I try to drive faster so I don't have to be near them just in case yeah. they want to hit me. Yeah. That's probably it. I like to drive by them, honk, and then pull away as fast as I can just so it's not to have a problem. But so one of the things you taught us is to weaken the loop. And, one, and you can use your own technology against itself. Turn off. Don't play victim to these things to the pre-selected, you know, choices. Right. Go in, select your choices. I, I only have my, I have my phone ring, but I even have it ring on silent. Yeah. So that's actually nice too, because I don't hear half the time. Um, but I also have it. Um, I also get my text messages mm-hmm. and then I try to just not check it. So one of the things you want, you suggest in your article is that we kind of put the phone in its place. Yeah. What do you mean? 
Well, that in particular, I think, uh, so the, one of the biggest problems with mobile phones is actually in the name itself that they're mobile. Uh, in the past, you had a landline and it had a specific spot yeah. in the house and you couldn't stretch it beyond yeah, like the cord. like eight feet of cord. Right. <laughs> That's it. And then, you know, maybe, maybe you could carry your, um, your portable phone yeah. around the house. That's right. But you can't take it out of the house. That's and right. so now we have smartphones that's a little computer in our hands, and so we're carrying it all around the house. So when I sit down, it's in my pocket. When I go to bed, it's on my nightstand. When I sit in the kitchen, you know, it's it's on the table. And if you actually choose a physical location where you want to keep your phone and put it there, um, you're just way less likely to that's pick right. it up all the time. Well, that's true. So instead of keeping it on your person, keep it away Turn up your volume and exactly. go have a life. Right. Think about how hard it is to or uh, how, how difficult it is to watch TV if you don't have the remote. Ugh. You lose the remote and you can't watch TV. And so it's the same type of idea if we, if we make it difficult yeah. to. Do you have kids, Max? I do. Yeah, I have two See, little ones. Well, what's great is that whole remote thing's not a problem when you have kids. <laughs> exactly. you're like, kids, get daddy the remote. <laughs> sure, they hate me. But – it's um, we've got to do something, don't we? Because this isn't this is all new, and we because we don't know the impact, but there's going to be an impact. I mean, just think of this: right. if, if all we did 50 years ago without cell phones, if we had our children constantly distracted, and we put them in a room where they didn't talk to anybody, and all they did was play with an abacus, uh-huh. <laughs> just moving numbers around on the abacus, we would. A, at the time, we would think that there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. B, we would assume that that's not going to be good for their well-being. Or if all they did was sit in front of the encyclopedias, reading the encyclopedias all day, mm-hmm. I mean, we would think, oh, boy, they're learning. But we'd also know they need to eventually leave the encyclopedias because right. my kids learn a ton. So you can't, you can't you know, fault them for what they learn because they really – my kids know a lot more probably than I ever did at that age. Mm-hmm. However, they don't know how to climb a tree <laughs> and they don't necessarily know how to climb on the roof and take the air conditioner apart. They just didn't, they don't do things. Those are important skills. They are. And they don't even necessarily know how to be creative, um, you know, playing with their trucks or their cars. Right. Because, but they, interestingly, they are creative playing Minecraft, building an entire community in a fake world. So, mm-hmm. Maybe it'll pay off, but I guess, too, in the end, we don't know. So we probably ought to be more careful. We've got about uh, one minute. What else do we need to know? Give us the one thing that if you – as you think about it, what's the one thing we should do to you know, make sure we're not addicted? Yeah, I would think uh, as soon as technology is uh, – you notice a negative impact in your life, then, yeah. then you need to find a way to put it in its place. If – if you're having to put your your spouse or your kids on hold for technology, then it's not good. And if you find yourself, um, you know, checking for your phone even when it's not there, uh, that's that's an addiction. Yeah. And so you need to f- find a way to put that in its place. And disabling notifications or making distance between you and your phone are good ways. To I do love that. that. If you're panicking the minute you don't have it, yeah, like oh boy, that could be bad. Or, I mean, we made a decision with our phones that we turned off our home phone. Big mistake because now we have to go get another phone for my son that is under – it's 10. Mm-hmm. But now that when we leave him, he doesn't have a phone. Right. And then I'm like, oh, my heavens. So we're just going to go get a beater phone to just have there. Oh, 
life. Well, Max, we appreciate you. Great website. If you go to his website, Max Ogles, O-G-L-E-S dot com, Max Ogles, you can learn uh, more ideas, insights in how to break the habit, understand your behaviors when it comes to technology. Good stuff. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll wrap up this hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Go to the Coach's Corner, give you some more ideas on how to strengthen your relationships using the technology as well. This is, you know, the tool set. We're giving you everything we can here to help you find and make a better life. We'll be right back right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's such an interesting thing, this technology. I like the idea a lot uh, that we live in this information age. What a cool time to be alive, really. I mean, not only can my son play the stare-down game with people from all over the world. I I, uh, looked up Flinch. Did you? Well, you were talking with Max. Yeah. Um, did you play it? No. You did, didn't you? No. I went online. There's some videos. People have put them on YouTube of them yeah. playing flinch and it's, just the idea of you're looking at your screen and then someone's face pops up. It is the weirdest thing. You stare at them. But it's turning into Chat Roulette, which was yeah. a website oh, really? that you could just hit a, hit the button and it would roll to the next random yeah. person. You would have a, You could have a conversation with them if you wanted to. But then it turned into just people doing weird things. Well, that's that's and that's what Flinch is turning into. There's a lot of complaints in the comments section <laughs> on that say? game. The what? reviews, parents saying that just people are just. My kid wants to play this game, and then all of a sudden they're looking at some adult and he does something weird. And, oh yeah, I believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My kids are like so. Be careful. Well, my, the funny thing about my kids, my kids uh, have get the giggles, so they're never really ever on any person longer than a second because. They laugh so hard. Well, that's what happened with chat roulette because you'd see something. Whoa, whoa. Oh, get me. Turn the, the channel. Beep. Get and so um, and that's interesting. I got to watch that. I keep saying, well, can't they? What if they do something? And they're like, no, they won't ever do that, dad. Yeah, of course they will. Somebody will. It's people. People but, do things. I mean, you'll just you'll just all of a sudden someone's face will pop up and they're picking their nose. Oh. <laughs> that's Jimmy from San Antonio. Hey, You're- Jimmy. Well, they talk. I mean, they, yeah. they never got to talk. If but. people play the game like it's supposed to be, it could be fun. Yeah, but, if you but get people are going to be twisted, and mm-hmm. then you have a live camera into some dude's house. Random dude. Yeah, random. Not someone you've chosen, but someone that the game just sort of. So there's yeah. there's possible problems, but every game has a possible issue. Every game that could be turned a certain way. Oh, so. so true. So true. Other people misusing possibly technology. What? Um, a Man in the Bronx in New York. Was his name Jimmy? No, actually, let me see. His name was Frank Egan. Okay. 36, lives with his mom. That was on the news report I heard on really? this morning. <laughs> Frank. Still they, living they, with your they mom. They really painted him in a certain way. He yeah. lives with his mom. You know, <laughs> um, He's arrested for injuring three pilots by pointing some kind of laser beam at aircraft heading to and from LaGuardia Airport. Really? He injured their eyes. They had to go seek medical attention because of him flashing a laser. How on earth do they know that it was Frank? 
Well, how old is Frank? Frank is 36. He was charged after officers from the NYPD's aviation unit spotted the laser being pointed out of his apartment in the Bronx. They'd see the light flashing. They're, they're you know, from the airport looking out at buildings and areas around. They can kind of triangulate. Okay, the, the pilot says it happened about this far out from the airport where, you know, they do the math and figure out exactly where and a person. Frank. And it was Frank. And the reason they know is because they saw it in his window. They went up to his, uh, the apartment. And uh, Frank, you know, lets them in and they start looking around and they found this kind of black flashlight looking thing on top of the fridge. And when they pulled it off right on the right on the, the handle, it said laser 303. So they figure that was the laser. And Frank. You, it's about a $50 laser. You can get it on Amazon. It says right on it. Don't point in anyone's eyes and don't bring down airliners. He uh, what did he do? He said uh, one of the two aircrafts the laser beam hit was a helicopter piloted by police officers. Right. Uh, they had uh, one had to be treated for eye injuries. The other pilot was flying an Air Canada commercial airliner and was hospitalized in Toronto. Police say Egan eventually admitted to using the laser they found in his apartment on top of his fridge. Um, he faces charges of reckless endangerment, criminal possession of a felony or of a weapon, felony assault, assault on a police officer because of the helicopter oh, man. and menacing a police officer. So he's in trouble. <laughs> Can you imagine the conversation when the cops showed up to the door and the mom's like, no, my Frankie just sits and looks out the window all day. <laughs> He's right. got that black thing that he just looks through, but nothing comes out of it. But they, they showed it in the uh, New York Daily News has a picture of it. And it looks just like a flashlight. Does it really? Except for laser 303 on the handle. See, I bet the mom thought, I bet he's like a Star Wars fan. And that was a lightsaber without <laughs> it's his lightsaber. light. Oh, boy. See, by the way, there's an example of uh, the boomerang kid. So the boomerang, he, he probably went away to college, whatever, came back. Well, I've used laser pointers. Yeah. Now, my kid just asked for one. I, I use their tiny ones. They're not like yeah. the, this one was a, this a, is an like industrial a, strength, bigger one. This one being as small as I was using, like, how can this hurt your eyes? Yeah. Try it. Did you try it? Yeah, it hurt. It's like looking at the sun. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, look at that. That hurt. Isn't that – my son's like, I want one, Dad. Everybody's getting one. And I'm like, why? Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. I actually gave him my pointer for my presentations, and he was disappointed. He's like, no, I want like a big one. Yeah. Oh, so you can bring down an airplane? Yeah. Like Frank? <laughs> now that's what I'm going to say. Oh, like Frank? Do you know what happened to Frank? There, other than pointing it to the ground and messing yeah, yeah. with cats cat. or something. Yeah, really. I'm, if you're not – a teenager's not doing presentations, so the, the usefulness of that isn't there. You're just – you're being a menace with it. Well, or you're my son's always like, okay, okay, put it, shine it on my chest like you're about to shoot me. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Where do you learn this? There's stuff? a SWAT team Dad, out the window. Shine Dad. it on my forehead. Oh, you mean really close to your eyes? Okay, let's try that. It's, yeah. I, how are our kids going to survive this? It's not good. No. Lots of pitfalls. Hey, parents out there, you need to deal with your kids or they're going to turn into Franks. You know what I mean? 36-year-old messing with a laser pointer out the window, shooting at police helicopters. Uh, let's make it do a mental note. I'm going to write a book. Uh, I'm going to call it uh, Frank and Beams. That's a good meal, by the way. Frank and Beans. Frank, Frank and, and Beams. Frank and Beans. Laser Beams. Beams, not beams. beans? Beam with an E-M, not an, not an N. So Frank and Beams. Okay. Uh, the story of boomerang children and the destruction they can bring to airliners. Copyright that. Copyright. Frank and Beams. That's my next book. Good times. Any other news? 
Did I blow you away with that one? That's a good book. No, but book I time. I just thought that was you always you hear about laser pointers. It happens yeah. at airports all across the country. Yeah, I and, just I can't believe they can actually triangulate and figure out which. I, I always doubted exactly what the harm was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand you're flashing it in their eyes, and the pilots yeah. are trying to land, and you don't want to distract them at that. It's moment. a laser, dude. But in this case, he injured two people with yeah. this laser, and, and, and like, one of them was. I guess they were both flying. One's in a helicopter. One was an airline pilot. I mean, that's that's the real deal. And so when you you hear about it, I, I hear about it on the news. And you just kind of, oh, you know, kids messing around. What's the big deal? And, well, and sometimes you don't but, know because, like, on airlines, they, like, turn your phones off, do all this stuff. And half the time you just think it's so that they can sell more Wi-Fi on the airline because half the time it doesn't seem like it's really a safety issue. Mm-hmm. This is a real issue. This is big. I mean. You can't injure the pilot as he's trying to fly. I wonder <laughs> if they felt it as they were doing it. Did they feel the pain and the injury, or is it so subtle know. you don't know? I don't know. A lot of times the pilots talk about the flashing light, and they know exactly what it is. They know it's a laser. After, they know that someone's out there trying to, you know, mess with the airplane. <laughs> Frank, what are you doing by the window? I'm just shining my flashlight on just, the airplane. <laughs> I just love the New York. It was the, I think it was the, it was the Daily News, and they, they just uh, point out that he lives at home with his mom. I know. They were, they were setting him up. What are you guys doing? Maybe Frank's not right. Frank and Beams. That's well, the book. Be looking for it. It'll Frank, be... Frank's in trouble. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Frank's in big trouble. Uh, we're going to take a break, my friends. Uh, hour number two. It's in the books. Whew. There's another one done. Next hour, we're going to get into the coach's corner and talk about, you know, five keys, five habits healthy couples do regularly. We'll be getting into that. One of them, by the way, is going to help overcome some of the problems with technology and those possible addictions you might be having. Anyway, that's it. Join us after this break next hour on the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, friends. Welcome to hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. Right here, broadcasting to you from the BYU Broadcasting Building. In the room, James Mortimer Birdsall, a.k.a. Frank from New York. <laughs> also known as Frank the Laser. With my handy-dandy laser 303. 303. Industrial strength laser. Also in the house, Terry Mortimer South. Mortimer. How come everybody has the middle name Mortimer? That's that's a you thing. University of Utah thing? No, you, as in you're making this up and spreading... Yes. Rumors. Well, yeah. I like to make up middle names. Just fun. <laughs> hey, um... Okay. I can't get this guy out of my head. Who, Frank? Frank. Frank Egan, 36, from New York. He's Frank. in the Bronx with a laser pointer at airplanes. Not anymore, he's not. Well, okay, he's probably in, uh, what's the prison there called? He's probably... I forgot. Yeah. I haven't gone to prison in New York lately. <laughs> um, that was last summer. That was last summer. But again, something as simple as a laser. Like, who would think 
that you just buy your kid an industrial strength laser, you're lucky like he's not amputating people's arms. Now, the rest of the story is that a Frank Egan, who the New York Daily News points out, lives with his mother, mm-hmm. uses a laser pointer out the window. The rest of that story is if his mother bought it for him. I bet she did. I think that would really kind of round out the story for me. Frankie, what do you want for your birthday? <laughs> I want a laser. You, you would think people pointing lasers out the windows would be teenagers. Yeah. Not a 36-year-old man, but I don't know. We don't know much about the story. But maybe he's just a victim of Obama's uh, ec- economic decisions. Right. It's Obama's fault. That's, a, that's what I was thinking. Eventually, somehow, it's going to be Obama's fault. Someone will figure that out. Put that on the news. So I wanted to let you know. Yeah. Keep you updated. Yeah, keep me up. It changes by the hour. What? Apparently Hillary's going to speak at 1.30 Eastern. She's going to address the United Nations. Why? Some other issue. But uh, she's going to address the United Nations today, and they feel she's going to address the email situation at the United Nations. Oh, well, that makes sense. I know. Won't that just initiate more... Fewer around the idea of all of the contributions that came to the Clinton Foundation reporters, internationally. Reporters are being told that the likely presidential candidate will use her speaking engagement at a women's empowerment event to speak about the scandal. <sighs> because this is Women's Day was on Sunday. I yeah. think this is Women's Week and I guess it's Women's Month, too. And that would be Women's mer- World. Uh, yeah. Okay. But it seems like, if, so if she tries to say this is a conspiracy against her because she's a woman and she an email, and like, are you saying women can't set up their own email accounts? That's what it's going to turn into. Might even account a server. I know. By the way, she had her name, HDR22, at ClintonMail.com. So it, th- it seems like if you wanted just at all to be, I don't know, more secure, you would Don't use your name? Don't use Clinton. Well, it's not something you could just type into a browser and access. Well, you know no, I, mean? I know, but so when some guy's sitting but, out yeah. in a van in your yeah. front yard and <laughs> is picking up Wi-Fi and it's coming from Clinton mail, yeah. I mean, you should call it Condor. Yeah, just give it some random name, but yeah. don't put your By name way, on it. By the way, do you know HDR, you know what the 22, do you know what the 22 stood for? They think it's because she met Bill when she was 22. Oh, wow. <laughs> HDR 22. So she's going to speak at the U.N. At the U.N. And, and maybe. And maybe address the situation. Maybe. Reporters are being told to possibly expect a announcement. I'm going to bet it'll disappoint. Oh, of course. Like all of these things, yeah. they tend to disappoint because there's some buildup to And you know what event. else? I'll bet it's going to be because of Obama. <laughs> Do you think? Someone's going to find a way. Allegedly. There's always someone out there that will find a way. Hmm. Uh, have you heard about the solar-powered airplane that's trying to fly around the world Bad with idea. no fuel at all? Bad idea. Why is that? Well, uh, I don't know. You've flown to Washington State before? <laughs> you need solar power. Yeah. You don't need... I mean, you need direct cl- sunlight not to direct your wings. necessarily. Okay. Well, the Swiss-made solar aircraft called the uh, the Solar Impulse is the name of the, the okay. team. That's called like the SI two or something. Uh, it took off just after dawn today from Oman. It's bound for India. It's the second leg of the trip. Okay. Uh, it's first sea crossing. The historic twenty-one thousand mile round the world trip. Wow. 
The aircraft's wings are covered by more than 17,000 solar cells that recharge the plane's batteries. Okay. So that's how you so they have batteries. make it through the night. Okay. Its wingspan is 236 feet. It's a larger span than a Boeing 747. Wow. And uh, that, that's so they can get all the solar cells yeah, out there. you got to get... Yeah. And it weighs just 5,000 pounds. Which is amazing because the batteries, you think, would weigh a, a lot. About as much as a minivan. Wow. But so it, it's going to be able to make it through the night. Yeah. Or will it just not fly at night? No, it'll fly at night. So is, is it nonstop, did it say? It's not nonstop. They'll land. Yeah, you got to get because lunch. They're, well, lunch. There's, there's the idea of spreading this, this message... Yeah. Of this type of technology. Well, that's great. They're going to land here in the U.S. in a few weeks, I guess. Hmm. So, But yeah, so there's that going on. We wish them the best of luck. I mean, really, there's, what's the worst thing that could happen? There's two pilots. They can only sleep 20 minutes at a time. Really? Narcolepsy. So you can't. <laughs> they put on these special glasses that flash yellow lights into their eyes. Wow. That helps to induce sleep. Are you sure that's not Frank with a laser beam? Could be. It is an airplane. It's not the See, Bronx. Uh, that's, you know, that's cool. I yeah. mean, really, because that's, we're advancing, you know, eco-friendly flight. And they want to be the first to do it by solar power. I hope they do it. I hope they make it. I hope it's a strong airplane. I, mean, I don't know. The wings are kind of floppy. floppy a little bit. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and, best and, of and luck right, to right, them. Right before they took off, it immediately had some sort of technical problem. So it was delayed <laughs> a few minutes. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. They're like putting new Ever-Readies in it. Yeah. I always have battery issues. Always. Whenever you go to use something, it's mm-hmm. dead. Yeah. Uh, a University of Oklahoma four-star recruit decommitted from the school's football team in the wake of the fraternity video that showed members singing a racist chant. Really? So now That's the, now cool. the football team has lost a, uh, a recruit because of this. That's great. Well, you know what else? Whether It may just be because he wanted it, he got a better offer. but Could be. He's just saying, oh, there's my out. But um, I think this is so apropos and, and perfect. We need to take on this fight. There's just subtle, inherent racism. And it needs to be kind of And then there's exposed. this. It wasn't really that subtle. It was behind closed doors. Yeah. But they, they've uh, – the, a lot of uh, – several interviews I've seen with students on campus, that, that, that this is something that's known about. This fraternity had this sort of reputation. Did you hear the Wisconsin – the boy that was shot in Wisconsin? Yes. Uh, did you hear his brother speak yesterday? I did. Fantastic. I mean, because this boy's a biracial boy, and he, just the message is so great that we need to change this. This needs to stop. Something's going on. We know something's going on. Let's quit hiding and pretending and arguing that, that there aren't racial um, discrepancies. And it, he still says we love the cops. We need the cops. But we also have to hold these people accountable and figure out – so it's not – it doesn't have to be an either-or. That his I, – I need his name. We need to find that guy's name because to me that was super powerful to, to stand up and not turn it into a war mm-hmm. but turn it into a how do we fix this for real? A lot of times you, you emotions of the moment, it turns into us versus them. Yeah. And he turned it into a, you know, we need to look at this as a bigger situation. What a big deal. Like he, he wasn't a brother. He was a cousin. But he he was, was speaking for the family. For the yeah. family. And he's just five years older than this boy. And he even was very real. The boy had issues. The boy lost his way for uh, for a while and yet was a beautiful kid. And um, and, and anyway, it's we've, this has got to be dealt with. How many more cities until we, we take it on and we deal with it? Yeah. And there's, there's resistance from people. Mm-hmm. They, 
uh, I've heard people try to uh, describe it as just a series of random events. Yeah. No. Well, I I think what we need, though, is somebody – we need somebody that can not polarize it. We don't need the traditional figures that come in and polarize every one of these issues. We need somebody that can talk about the complexity of it. And I think interestingly, because he's biracial, that this this can change the discussion to be real and not just racist. You know what I mean? Like it became systematic and then systematic. I mean, you can have a racial belief that just turns into eventually a system and then some frat house stupidly keeps using a stupid song that there had to have been people in the room that thought this is racist. Yeah. And maybe didn't have enough guts to do something about it. And then there's others that were pure racist doing it. And it's that complex. All of these issues are that complex. But we need new ways to talk about it. And I think that young man stepped up. I thought that was way cool. We need that. We need leaders like that. Um, Let's do this. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I want to do a coaching uh, corner and talk about your relationships. In the last hour, we talked about how technology may be getting in the way of, uh, you know, it might actually be hurting your relationships. I want to talk about five habits that uh, healthier couples do to make sure their relationship is growing and strong and connected. We'll get into that when we come back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. Coaching Corner is up next right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there's so many things in our relationships that distract us, don't they? I mean, whether it's just the kids or your job or your phone. And it's easy to just slowly kind of disconnect from the person that you love. You may have, uh, you know, you've made this incredible promise to each other, this commitment, this covenant that you're going to be with each other forever, which is always easier to do when you're all excited and charged and everything is perfect. Then life happens. The economy tanks a little bit. You got to get another job. And slowly but surely, things start to pull you apart. Five habits healthy couples do regularly. I put together an article, um, and I'll uh, be posting it on my Facebook page. Um, five habits healthy couples do regularly. They're, they're just basic principles, but they're things that I see every day as I coach couples, coach uh, people that, that work. Okay, Number one, habit number one is they express gratitude daily for their partner. They express it. So a lot of us assume gratitude daily. We know our partner's grateful. They don't always say it. I had a couple in recently that just said, you know, we don't even say I love you face to face. So think about that. How often do you say I love you to your partner? And how often do you do it actually eye to eye? They say little phrases like love you, bye, love you. So is that, I guess that's good enough. But one of the things that the research shows is couples that express gratitude daily for each other 
have more durability. Two psychologists uh, from the University of California, Davis, Robert Emmons and University of Miami's Michael McCullough, spearheaded some research on gratitude and its effects on relationships. In one of their studies, the researchers had volunteers um, keep weekly journals in which they wrote about particular topics. One group wrote about major events that had happened that week. Another group wrote about the hassles they had experienced. And the last group wrote about the things they were grateful for. Ten weeks later, those in the gratitude group reported feeling more optimistic, more satisfied with their lives than those in any of the other groups. So those that were just giving data, those that were just talking about the junk, the hassles, compared to those that were actually focusing on the more positive things, Ten weeks later, they felt more optimistic, more satisfied with their lives than those in any other group. They also reported fewer physical symptoms of discomfort, from runny noses to headaches, and they exercised more. Gratitude. One of the tools I give each one of my clients uh, in one of the first visits they have with me is I have them make a list. It's a T-chart, I call it. It just looks like a T. You put your name on the left side of the T and put your spouse's name on the right side of the tea. And um, underneath, I have them every day identify three things a day that their partner did that made them feel loved or something that their partner did that was positive that they were grateful for. Three a day each day. And I have them do that for six straight weeks. That means they put 21 entries a day. I mean, 21 entries a week each of things that are good and working. I also teach them they can't repeat, so you got to keep looking for new things every day. By the end of a week, you have 42 entries a week times six weeks. That's a lot of good stuff. That's a lot of good love. And what I found for couples that are really kind of negatively charged towards each other, that negatively interpret each other, guess what? Those people have changed their negativity towards more positivity, and now they have a more positive interpretation of their partner. Boom. That's just one idea. So think about your marriage. Do you express gratitude daily for your partner? If not, it doesn't mean, you know, you're going to divorce. It just means you may not be feeling the benefits of the positivity. Again, it's also not a big habit. It's just a basic habit. So I'm going to challenge you as you listen today to the show. Take that idea. Take one of the five ideas I'm going to give you and please do something with it. Okay. Habit number one, express gratitude daily for your partner. Habit number two, regularly celebrate the unique strengths of your partner. You know what I mean? Each of us have different strengths, different aptitudes. Sometimes, though, we get in a situation where we don't necessarily like our partner's strength. Like when I married my wife, I loved that she was so disciplined. Now, sometimes I don't love it when she's disciplined anymore because that means we have to do the dishes before we can go have a relaxing time. But her discipline is something that is unique to her. It's powerful for her. And in a series of studies um, on this subject, uh, University of California Berkeley psychologist uh, Ami Gordon found that the more grateful couples were, the more likely they were to still be in a relationship nine months down the road. Gordon's research had one crucial caveat, though. Expressing gratitude isn't solely confined to saying thank you for a kind deed. Being grateful, she writes in a blog for Psychology Today, is about feeling lucky to have a caring partner in the first place. So she defines grateful and celebrating the strengths this way. 
My definition of gratitude includes appreciating not just what your partner does, but who they are as a person. You are not just thankful that your partner took out the trash. You're thankful that you have a partner who is thoughtful enough to take out the trash. Do you actually think of your partner just by what they do? Most of us could easily fall into the habit of just evaluating maybe the worth of our partner simply by what they do for us or what they don't do for us. But that's a pretty shallow concept. Well, you do the dishes and you make dinner and you bring home money and you play with the kids. But maybe what we also ought to be grateful for and celebrating are the unique strengths of our partner, the commitment, their sense of humor, their hard work, their uh, forgive their willingness to forgive their commitment and the one of the reasons why i think it's important to focus on the strengths because sometimes the strengths um, might actually resonate more with the person than what they do and a lot of people i know don't even know what their strengths are so if somebody came up to you and asked you what are your top five strengths would you even know But there's some really interesting research on people that understand their strengths and focus on where they have strength. They actually feel more happy because they're doing something that is kind of a unique part of them, their attributes, their gifts. So one of the things we got to make sure we're doing with our spouses is make sure that we're celebrating their unique strengths. Think about your spouse. What are their top five strengths? Don't make it a do. Make it a, a trait. They have integrity. They have humility. They have um, patience. They're meek. They're long-suffering. Oh, are they long-suffering? Anyway, powerful stuff. Uh, Two's basic habits, celebrating things that we see our partner do. And the second one is celebrating their unique strengths and character traits. Those are two very basic habits of healthy relationships. Ask yourself, how effective are you in those two areas? And as you're driving to work today, maybe make a commitment. As you're driving around the day, getting lunch, make a commitment to how you are going to go strengthen your relationship by simply being grateful, not only for what your partner does, but for the strengths that they bring. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to finish the other three habits. And these are going to be critical to overcoming Uh, the impact that technology has had on your relationship. Have you noticed that you're being distracted too easily? The next two habits are going to teach you one of the key lessons in all of marriage and family research on how to strengthen a healthier marriage. One of the key lessons that technology may be stealing from you. We'll come back. This is the Coach's Corner. I'm Dr. Matt Townsend, your relationship coach, your guide on the side right here on BYU Radio. Matt Townsend Show. This is the show where we give you the tools, the ideas you need to help grow happier, healthier lives, stronger loves, right? And better leadership. Something that uh, we all need in this world. Better lives, more better loves, better leadership. And by the way, we're all a part of that. 
So on the show, uh, we've been talking about uh, five different habits that healthy couples tend to do more regularly than those that aren't as healthy. We've already talked about two, expressing gratitude daily for what our partner does. Also expressing and celebrating the unique strengths of our partner, helping them make sure they understand what they do well. The third habit is to make what we call regular bids to connect with our partner. Healthy couples bid to one another. And this comes from the work of John Gottman, who's one of the great relationship gurus in marriage and family. He has a a program called the Love Lab, where he has brought in thousands, I think, over time, of um, families, couples into his lab and been able to figure out what is the key to a healthy relationship. One of the things he's found, he calls a bid. A bid is a regular kind of um, request for somebody's connection. Okay. A bid, for example, is where a husband is, let's say that they're a bird enthusiast. Okay. They like birds. And they look out the window, and he notices a goldfinch fly across the yard. He might say to his wife, hey, honey, look at that beautiful bird outside. Okay, that is a bid. He's begging in a way, bidding his wife to please come be a part of something I like here by commenting on the bird. He's requesting a response from his wife. That is a sign of interest. Now, bidding is a simple habit that a lot of us quit doing in our relationships Because of the next habit, habit four is to make sure that you turn toward your partner and connect to their bids. Healthy couples bid regularly, and they turn toward their partner's bids. Those are the next two habits. Bidding is say, hey, babe, what do you think of this? Or, uh, so, uh, I I don't know what to tell your, I, I want to tell you what your mom said to me this morning. That is a bid. Hey, what should we do this afternoon? That is a bid. Those are all designed questions to get a partner to turn to you. So think about your relationship. Do you throw out a lot of bids or are you totally content being on your cell phone forever and never once showing your partner even what you're doing or bidding them to come be a part of this? I think technology may be pushing away some of our bids. When we are deeply in love, we tend to have a lot of bids. Look at this. Come with me. Look at that. And it's, it creates this sense of mutuality or sharedness. So all of us have to create an opportunity of more bidding and more turning. The turning is simply where the partner actually receives it. And they say, oh, yeah, that is a beautiful bird. Now, which one is that? And even if you don't like the hobby, you don't, you're not into the hobby, you're still willing to turn toward your partner instead of turning away. Again, the research is about people that turn toward their partners responded by engaging and supporting and showing interest in what their partner's doing. Those who didn't turn away. They just stay watching television, right? Keep watching TV. When your partner says, hey, babe, how was your day at work? That's a bid. Please do what you can to, to turn. If you see it as, a, you know, as an interruption, you're going to end up making a big mistake. Here's some of the research on, in Gottman's work. He said, couples who divorced had roughly 50% less turning toward their partner's bids than those couples in the study that didn't divorce. Does that make sense? So couples that were divorcing had a lower 50% less turning toward experience. With the healthier couples that turned toward their spouse, they nearly did it nine times out of 10. So healthy couples turn towards their spouse's bids 
nine times out of ten. Those that actually were divorcing in his study, they did it half of the time. So important, right? It's a very basic, it's a very basic skill. It's a very basic tool. And I want you to just try it a little bit more. Try more bids to involve your partner in your life. Oh, hey, did I tell you about what happened to me at work today? Now, if your partner's too busy to actually turn physically, look at you, ask you about it, guess what? It's not going to go anywhere. Nothing's going to happen. So in the end, um, I think in the end it won't – you're not going to be able to keep up. Bids and turns. How are you doing at that in your marriage? Habit number three, more bids. Habit number four, make sure you turn towards your partner's bids. Highly suggest tonight, do what you can to throw out two or three or four bids to your partner to see if they will turn. And then when they turn, boom, now we know we're creating something. Isn't that weird? Such a simple idea, isn't it? And yet so many of our relationships don't do it. We instead, we turn towards our TV, we turn towards the radio, we turn towards all these other things that are going on, but not toward the people we love the most. Habit number five, the last tool that the healthier couples are doing more than um, maybe sometimes the rest of us, they practice what I just call restorative touch daily, meaning they touch every day. It doesn't mean it's always highly you know, affectionate, but it's a, it's a touch. And what I believe is, and the research basically bears this out, it takes about 20 seconds of touch to ignite a chemical kind of reaction in you. Oxytocin, that's the cuddle hormone. You may have heard of that. A lot of moms get oxytocin when they're feeding their baby. So we know touch is valuable and powerful, but some of us, maybe we might hug each other. We might touch every day, but we maybe don't touch enough to actually ignite that chemistry in each other. 20 seconds. So basically what I suggest you do, I want you to ignite that chemistry. It doesn't mean it needs to go anywhere. It doesn't mean we need to go be intimate. It doesn't mean any of that. But it should, you should, when you hold each other, feel some, you know, connection, some restorative uh, connection that kind of restores the chemistry back to you. We know that touch heals people. We know it makes us healthier. We know that it makes us more, um, you know, calmer. It's just, it's a very powerful way to restore the connection. So I basically just give you the rule, whether it's cuddle or whether it's you come home from work and you hug and you hug and you hold each other 20 seconds. I mean, I know that's weird, but you know, you used to do that when you were deeply in love, didn't you? That was so easy. But remember, just because it used to be easy, it was easy because the chemistry was easy. Now you have to kind of earn it a little bit more, and the research is pretty much playing out how we do that. A hug, a kiss, but 20 seconds a day at least of just holding each other. That could be when you're going to bed. That could be when you're saying hello, when you're saying goodbye. Basic touch. Okay, five basic habits. Let's go through them one more time remind you. Number one, express gratitude daily for your partner, what they're doing for you. Three things a day. Put it on a chart. Number two, regularly celebrate the unique strengths of your partner. Talk about what they do incredibly well. Defer to them when, they, when their strengths are being used instead of you having to compete with their strength. Habit number three, make regular bids to connect with your partner. Invite them back into your life. If you find something on Facebook, turn to them. Let them know what it is. Bring them back. Habit number four, turn toward your partner when they are trying to bid with you. 
Turn towards them. Find out what they're doing. Put your phone down. Get into what they're doing. And number five, practice restorative touch daily. You know, we need more touch. And touch doesn't always have to go anywhere but just connecting us. That's it, dude. There's the five very basic tools, the habits for healthier relationships. We're going to take a break. When we come back, holy cow, we're going to Vegas. We're going to talk to our friends at BYU Sports Nation. Some incredibly positive news coming out from BYU basketball, both men and women's, up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you, something is happening in Vegas. We will now go to our brethren, Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Oh, hello, Matthew. Championship Tuesday. Mm -hmm. There's stuff always happening in Vegas. You guys are killing it there. Good, great job. Wow. When do you sleep? Well, well, well the basketball team's doing more than we are. Well, I know. <laughs> they played a heck of a game last night. It was fantastic. One of the better games we've always played all year. Yeah. Maybe the second or third best game they've played all year. And Kyle Collinsworth, the triple-double, mm-hmm. the big story in the second half, trended nationally on Twitter. The first half was Chase Fisher, 20 points. He outscored Portland at one point. He was up. It was Chase Fisher, 20, Portland 18 at one point. Wow. <laughs> because Chase hit six of his first seven threes. BYU went eight of ten. It was a really good win, and I think people on the East Coast, the bracketologists, probably watched maybe the first half, saw BYU crush it, and then went to bed, found out, hey, Kyle Collinsworth had a triple-double this morning if they didn't stay up, but BYU gets to Tuesday night. That was, uh, We've been talking about this for weeks, man. Yeah. That if BYU got 25 wins and they got to the championship game against Gonzaga, they would get into the tournament. That's our opinion. Mm-hmm. I speak for Spencer. He's done. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Spencer's just nodding his head yes. This is fantastic, that, that which I is am. great radio. I'm just, I'm <laughs> totally. just, you know, loving the fact that since we started this little talk back on the Matt Townsend uh-huh. show, yeah, BYU basketball has not lost a game. I'm telling you, it's hard. Wow, this is hard to the do. The MTE, yeah, the Matt Townsend effect combined yeah. with the BYU Sports Nation karma, well, totally. is just it's too, too, it's almost too much. I mean, the I don't. Cosmos cannot handle. Yeah, what I, is happening? I don't think we should take all the credit. I mean, the team is trying harder. <laughs> They're playing defense. They're getting rebounds. They're Dude, making shots. That is just and Collinsworth. Are you kidding me? That is great, man. So he's tied with Shaquille O'Neal, right? I know. He's unbelievable. Yes, for a, here's the thing: for a career like Shaquille O'Neal's record, oh, triple double record was yeah. over three seasons. Kyle's done all six. He's he's put up six triple doubles in one season. A year after he tore his ACL, <laughs> yeah, so on I this see. very court. On yeah. this very court, it was it was tonight a year ago, in the championship game when that happened. He said that he when he first came into the arena uh, late last week that he had a flashback to him sitting in a wheelchair mm. during the second half of that game. But he said that he focused on all the hard work that he put in, leg raises a thousand times a day. Chase Fisher said last night, it's not a surprise to me to see when he has a triple-double because of how hard he works. Mm, that's so cool. That's character right there. Maybe, too, that maybe really when they is. tightened that ACL or whatever, maybe they over-tightened it. Maybe he's got a little more spring. I'm not saying anything, but maybe. 
He's got something. He's got honestly. This is the truth. He he. When he got his surgery done, he came back by and, the dude that worked on Tiger Woods' knee. Yes, by the way, Tiger See? Woods' knee surgery. Cooley in uh, Park City. Yeah. Park City. He told me I have something called a double bounded ACL, which is usually only found in African American athletes. Really? And Kyle said I'm lucky to have that. It allows me to be athletic and jump a little bit higher. And so. Yeah, we should. He said the other those. night, take it for what it is. <laughs> he said the other night that his uh, surgically repaired knee feels a little bit better than his other his knee. His other knee. Wow, how about that? <laughs> hey, can you ask that doctor? Here's, here's the thing: if he does plantar fasciitis, <laughs> I have a doubly bound plantar. We always have to bring it back to Matt. We always have to bring it back. It's to my you. plantar, dude. I want to offer more to I- the team. <laughs> I want to point something out as well. What? Last night, I'm on the baseline, you know, getting a vine for the interwebs. Mm-hmm. And Chase Fisher sees me, and he, he sticks out his hand for a five, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, all right, we're doing this. I'm media, whatever. Uh, and and I think the BYU Sports Nation karma was transferred. Really? Because then At he made moment. six of his first seven threes. When he touched your hand. I think, I think that happened. <laughs> yeah. It was a high five. I was like, boom. Hey. Just a simple... Simple thing. Maybe what you guys ought to do is go give all of the players a rub down. Just a little nope. massage. Nope. Just just, just nope. maybe a little massage. Just their shoulders. Maybe their <laughs> arms. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Like Taysom Hill, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic. You know what's ironic about, about how Kyle uh, set the triple or tied the career triple double record? What? He did it while shooting a free throw. And if you're not familiar yeah. with this, last year Kyle really struggled from oh, the free throw. Oh, I didn't know that. Line. It was bad. And he, he spent a ton of time over the summer when that was basically all he could do right. because he wasn't completely mobile was just practice free throws. And so oh, his brother sent out a tweet that said, I loved, I loved that he tied the triple-double career record on the free throw line. That, Matt, it, the reaction good. from the crowd was fantastic because we've given Dave Rose a hard time. This season, yes, because we're, we always say, like, how do you not know the stats that he just needs one assist or one yeah. rebound or one point or whatever? So this one, the whole crowd knows, for uh, BYU fans, <laughs> all the Gonzaga fans have left, the whole crowd knows they're chanting one more point. Uh. One more, and he needed one assist before that. So everyone stands up when he gets the assist. Anytime anyone had a sh- – he passed to anyone that was in rhythm to shoot, they were like – and then if they didn't, oh, you know, this. so the, oh, cool. everyone's just dying yeah. on this triple-double. And then he finally gets to the free throw line. Everyone stands up and starts cheering. And it's like, be quiet. Kyle said, <laughs> everyone is making noise. And I was at the free throw line. They're BYU fans. He makes it, acknowledges it. It was just a cool oh, community experience neat. where all the previous triple-doubles had been. Yeah, just get oh, it done. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't. We're like, whatever, man, you knew. That is so great. And he deserves it. Come on. One more game, folks. That's all we need, huh? Spence, are you going to do Eat something? The Zags. Do you remember Jerem threw out a, a challenge? <laughs> I'm just wondering. Everyone if, wants him to do something. Because I'm thinking, if you don't want to shave your head, shave your legs. Uh-huh. That'd make great TV. Ooh, continue to shave your legs. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, settle down, Jerem. I've shaved. I don't know my, how much I have you shaved my legs one time in my life. One time. Well, so it's probably due. Yep. You're probably due another shave. Yeah. It is anyway. Yep, it's I'll leave that for your show. But there. yeah, well, we're watching you guys. <laughs> Whatever you choose to do, it's your choice. Well, thanks. That, that's uh, great. Keep I up t- the great yeah. work. Yeah.
You decide. You know, it's no hey, big deal. I mean, Jerem did shave his I'll, head. I'll, I'll be thinking about it. Okay. You, hey, if you have an idea, tweet tweet it at me. I will. Tweet it at me. I will. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I've got a okay. lot of ideas, but I will. I'll send those out to you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Three hours worth of ideas every day. That's exactly right. right. Never stops. Thanks, guys. Take care. Keep up the winning. Woohoo! I'm telling you, it's just good. It's good to be a part of a winning tradition. And I mean, you know, sure, they just say, you're just the morning show guy. Sure, you're not on the court. But we all know. We know. You're a sports guy, Terry. You know. You know what we're bringing to the show here. That you are the reason that BYU is winning? Not the reason. I mean, sports beat, sports now, nation. Now you're trying to be humble. I mean, you, you really think you are the reason. I just bring the effect, the Matt Townsend effect. They'll, they bring the karma okay. together with the team that has talent. So it's effect, <laughs> karma, plus team yeah. equals win. Yeah. But I am convinced if Jerem would go, you know, massage their arms and their legs, I bet you that'd be a better game. I or mean, not. I mean, I am. Yeah. I am a doctor. I am a doctor. Um, that's cool. Can wow. I be a doctor too? No. You actually have to be a doctor. But oh. James is a doctor of what, James? Of passion. <laughs> Ouch. That hurts every time he does that. <laughs> Terry's never heard that. That is the uh that's the that's the James. official that's the official James introduction. Yep, okay. PhD, PhD in passion. Passion. Yes. Let's hear that sound. Passion. Ouch! The sound of me winking, by the way. That's a wink. That's not a whip. Okay. <sighs> wink, not a whip. We've had a great show. Uh, loved our first guest today, Amos Giora. Do you remember him? I do. And it seems so long ago. But anybody that studies terrorism... And he's a counterterrorism expert. Didn't he have like four points to determine if someone is a terrorist? Uh-huh. That was interesting. Yeah. And he's got just I like uh, so many publications. It's crazy. Part of it is probably because there's not a lot of people publishing in this area. <laughs> but he's also lived the, lived the world. I mean, when you are living in Israel day in, day out, and some things that he didn't mention. He has a son that is actually in the military in Israel. So that his son, anytime he's talking about any of this, he knows that his son could be in harm's way at any time as well. That was a great uh, guest and just incredible information about what's going on. We talked to Max Ogles, if you remember, about um, you know disconnecting, putting our phone in their place, for heaven's sakes. We just got to, at some point, we just got to turn it off. Turn it off. And then in the last segment, I talked about uh, five habits to create stronger relationships. That's what we try to do on the show is give you all the tools so it can work. And it's fun today, too, because James showed up on time. You know what I mean? That helps. You know, and I don't want to throw him under the bus. But, but you just did. Yeah. <laughs> and then you backed up. And then I backed over him again. <laughs> then I'm going to just drive over him again. Beep, because beep. you make one mistake every time we have daylight savings. So what? Twice a year. James doesn't show up for the first hour. Eventually, that's what's going to be great when he's married. His wife's going to not let him make that mistake. That's true. Well, and the the, the thing, the really good part about all of this is mm-hmm. that I'm grateful that it wasn't daylight savings time in the fall or else I would have been two hours late for the show. That's a great as opposed point. To, that is a great yeah, point. Just saying. Because we've done the show together, what, two years? Two, yeah. Two years. About, yeah. 
what's that? What's the quote we always say about daylight savings time? Yeah, um, it's times the time times, the times the go, the, by, go daily. by daily. Yep, save us, save us daylight daily savings, savings time, money, money, time and money. Beautiful. You almost remembered it. Yeah, I mean. I say that almost every day. I, I, yeah, just say it again real fast just because I forgot. What, what, what was it? Well, just to paraphrase, daylight savings, time, and money. So yeah, saving. So what was your key learning today, James? 20 seconds. 20 seconds is the restorative touch. 20 seconds is how long it takes to kick in the serotonin. I mean the uh, oxytocin of the love. So you need to hug your wife, Terry, more so, than 20 seconds. I, I, I listen now, to you. She, it also has to be volunteer. She has to want to be hugged because that, that, that's – more than 20 seconds, that's actually an offense. I listened to you say the, the, the touch. What would you call that? Restorative, restorative touch. Restorative touch. Can that be a forearm shiver? Sometimes no. I no. walk by my wife, I just sort of bump her. I go, no. hey, what's no, going no, on? No, no, no. It's got to be 20 seconds. Restorative. Can't right. be forearm shiver or shimmy. Sort of bump her and no. knock her off balance? Okay. No, that's good. I'm glad I can help. And again, remember, 20 seconds, restorative. 25 seconds when they don't want to be touched, that's – a misdemeanor. We're out of here, folks. Thanks for joining us. Back tomorrow. More tools, more ideas right here on BYU Radio.